Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Nevers More Podcast, where we talk more about the Nevers. I am Lee. I'm here. I'm joined by my podcast host and best friend, Spencer. Spencer, how you doing? Doing well, man. How about you? I am doing great. I'm very excited to talk about this episode. This is episode five in a six-episode arc that we're going to get in the front half of season one of this show, The Nevers. It's episode five titled Hanged. Um, before we joined, we, but right before we started recording, you said you were frustrated. So I just want to get initial, immediate hot takes. You just watched the episode. Why are you frustrated? This was a polarizing episode for me because it embodied some of the kinds of scenes that I like most about how, what this show does. But a, a lot of the stuff, almost all the stuff that I find most frustrating about the structure and style of this show. So it was a particularly frustrating episode for me because I can see both the brilliance and the stuff that just pisses me off just thrown in together. And you know, like, I, so I introduced Spencer. It's probably the first time I maybe I did this on uh, this podcast. Is one of my best friends, Spencer. You're you're definitely one of my best friends. Oh, and I can oh. say that we are on a video podcast, so we're not recording it, right? So people listening to us, they can't see what I'm seeing, but I know you well enough to know the face you're giving me right now, <laughs> and it is genuine frustration. So I'm excited to get into this and actually figure out what has perturbed you so much about this episode. Because I'll give you my initial take before Please. we do a little housekeeping and jump into our episode. My thought was a little hokey, but ultimately a pretty good episode of television. And I felt like it's the type of episode the show needed to try to start to break through. Because the casuals are going to love this episode, Spencer. The folks like me and you who pay attention to every line of dialogue, every little detail. I mean, hell, I was calling this shit in the spoiler section of our last episode. What what, what happened here, right? Mm -hmm. But the folks who don't pay that much attention are going to love it. And so... Two, two things. One, for me personally, I felt like, you know, it was pretty entertaining and it was nice. But I also thought it was a very productive um, hour of television for this series. And I bet you, I'm just guessing, but I bet you it goes a long way to start to build that fan base up for this show. Which is what we're looking for, right? And I dispute none of those points. I agree with all of those points. It's the packaging and the presentation that continues to annoy me. Not necessarily the points that we're getting to as we go along this road. Well, I mean, heavy penance episode, so I can't wait to hear all your hot takes about it. Dear God! Before we do so, a little housekeeping. I will keep it brief. It's very similar to the housekeeping we've hit on in previous episodes, which is, thanks everybody for listening. Again, the podcast continues to grow week over week. We're sort of astonished by this. We've done podcasts now for about three years on the Mangum Talks podcast channel. We've done a lot of different podcasts. You can go to mangumtalks.com to check them out. None of them have really risen to the heights of this one, so we're, we're really uh, really like sort of humbled by that, and we really appreciate it. So thanks everybody for listening, and everybody who's taken the time to rate um subscribe and review the podcast uh we appreciate that if you if you have a chance if you like in the podcast and you have a chance to do that that stuff really goes a long way so if you could you know just rate and review us on whatever podcast platform that you do you use to listen to the podcast that's really helpful uh helps more get more ears on the podcast helps us grow and um it's good all the way around for the never more podcast so let's jump into our episode like every week we are going to go to a recap i will lead the recap then we will do best line of the episode i and i am alone emperor best line of the episode i will select best line of the episode although spencer does supply me with some nominees then we get into best character arc and we award the booby prize of the week for worst character arc which character is on the bottom of our power rankings and then we will finish up with Theory time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to tell you, Spencer, <laughs> I'm hesitant to do theory time with you this week because we started theory time in episode three, our review of episode three. Mm -hmm. And I went, I have gone bang, bang 
I've gone two for two yeah, it, it, in my theories. <laughs> at, at this point, at this point, would you kindly reveal to the audience that you have a personal connect within the writer's department of this show? Because <laughs> two for two. It's either with my theories. It's either that, and, or you uh, become Miss Cleo. These are the only explanations I have for your just the precise bang on points of your theories so far. And if you followed us for our live review of Game of Thrones Season 8, you will know that I am not in the business of normally theorizing correctly. I failed up and down that episode, that season of television. So I've gone two for two here. I will throw out some theories here uh, this week, um, but I'm a, I'm a little hesitant to do so because I'm batting a perfect record right now. It's kind of big for me, Spencer. Yeah, I mean, your theory last time around, we're going to get to it pretty quick in this episode because they didn't make much of an effort to hide it early. It was like, oh, okay, yeah, Lee's right. Wasn't much hiding it, really, once, once once they started getting moving. Yeah, it's very true. Although I will say, well, uh, we'll get into it. Yeah, we'll, we'll get it. All right. All right. Anything you want to say before we jump into the recap? Nope. Nope. Let's get into the meat. <laughs> All right. I've got a frustrated Spencer, so buckle up, everybody. Arr. We're going to jump into the recap here of the Nevers Episode 5. This one titled, aptly titled, Hanged. We start with another dark scene. This is um, starting to be like a little trope for the show, right? Where they, they start with sort of some sort of like night outside sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and this actually is the folks digging what looks to be maybe underground and underneath this orb that we saw all lit up. I believe it was we saw it in episode three when Darth Lavinia was yeah um, and, first revealed to us. And when Miss uh, Cassini, I think it was, that was grabbed and kind of sort of lobotomized-ish. Right. So it just kind of starts with that. And then, bang, we cut to a pretty serious scene here, Spencer. We up the nudity bars right away. Get that right out of the way early on in the episode with our main character, no less. A nude scene from Amalia and Mm -hmm. Horatio going at it. Um, So, you know, obviously we're podcast professionals, so we have to watch this immediately after viewing. I don't watch it the night of because I want to make sure that um, I I go to bed pretty early. I want to watch it. Yeah, be fresh. Full attention. So I get up early in the morning on Monday morning and I get to the gym and I got my big iPad in front of me. I get on the exercise bike and I throw this bad boy on. What did I get? (laughs) Born. Boobs everywhere. I was so like, ah, I was like scrambling to try to hide it from people. But yeah, it was kind of shocking to get a nude scene this quickly. Were were you at the gym? You were at the gym yeah i was at the gym with my ipad up and like i was like trying to hide it from people we've talked about this don't watch hbo at the gym do not watch hbo in a public place it's dancing with landmines yeah this one was really tough because i mean we've seen some nude scenes in this show but nothing nothing right from jump street like this i will tell you this though about this This is obviously a a scene of amelia and uh or amalia and, and horatio going at it i was sure you if you had i was sure this was a flashback I was sure it was a flashback, and when I, they confirmed that it wasn't, let's reach point number one of things that pissed me off about this episode. That we got a okay. five-week minimum, maybe even be a few-month time jump between episodes without any degree of build-up or explanation. At least, what was it? At least five weeks, because we heard fi- we, five... Five-week uh, trial. Yeah, the judge said that we've heard five hey. weeks of testimony. So it was at least five weeks. Now, Probably previous episodes, we've now. jumped like a day, maybe a day or two. This one is five weeks, so just bang, out of nowhere. Hey. Um, and a lot apparently yeah. happened while we were off camera. Yeah, including the um, Amalio, uh, Amalia, why am I pronouncing her name tonight? Amalia and Horatio, um, I guess, just rekindling that relationship. Uh, um, I, although she, he's still with his wife, though, clearly, right? Because she references his wife. Yeah, they're, they're kind of sacks of shit about this, really. It's that He's still very much married, and still even talk about his wife at one point in this, and he... 
But apparently at some point off camera, they have rechristened, re reignited the flame between the two. Yeah. So uh, in this montage, we get the scene of Malady. Apparently there, again, five weeks of testimony. Uh, that's very important to keep in mind as you start to construct the events of this episode and put it in context with what we've seen so far, that it's been about a, maybe a five-week or a two-month jump, something like that. Pro probably um, longer, too, because it was just testimony. There was a lot of pretrial procedure and build-up and even coordinating things before they ever went to that. We could have been months at this point. Yeah, but I got to I don't know. I thought about that, but I got to think that with Malady, like they seem so quick to get her like to the firing line like that. It, it seems to me like they probably like rushed. Like I doubt they were like, well, let's put Malady in, in jail. We have some administrative delays here for two months before we can actually get to our, yeah. our court case. It's a fascinating show. They're willing to yada yada five weeks. But once we're back on camera, we are going to rush the events that are occurring here on after. Well, <laughs> we we have to, at least in this episode, they gave us a two-day episode. Oh, right? yeah. <laughs> Up until now, we've been commenting on, like, it's been one day. Like, well, one day for episode? But this is this was clearly two days. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so Malady is found guilty, shocker, mm. of a whole bunch of things. But one of them includes 15 counts of murder. She's sentenced to execution by hanging. But here's the kicker, everybody. She's going to be hanged in public Wait. now i i don't like let's go ahead and discuss the sentencing uh, of her hanging by uh hanging in public mm -hmm. let's go ahead and discuss that within the context of what we know with the rest of the episode so because i just want to get your opinion on this do you think the judge cooked this idea up on his own because it seems by what we know like, especially like Harriet gives us that little bit of context about just how sort of anathema this is to yep. the current law. And it seems very strange to the men in the gentlemen's club. It seems like this is so off the off the reservation as far as like, OK, well, we're going to we're going to kill her, but we're going to make it public. It couldn't have just been one judge who decided to do. He had to be empowered to make this decision. Right. Very much so. And the show's actually historically accurate that the last public hanging in England was in 1868. They called that very much correctly. Every other hanging thereafter was private and done in the jail. So the fact the judge is doing it and the fact that he's getting away with doing it because, you know, what he's doing is illegal. They could appeal it. They could overturn the verdict because he can't order that. He doesn't have the authority to do so. All strong suggests that the man has profound government backing to make this happen. It's clear that Lord Maston and his gang want this to be a public event. Yeah. And then at the end of the montage, we see that orb. We go back to the orb again. It lights up in sort of this like pulsing fashion. And then we get these crappy credits that still haven't changed that we've <laughs> gone on record about how see, much we hate. Very, very quick intro this week. You think we'll get a more expanded credits, some more classic HBO style credits come second half of season one or maybe season two? Or is this... Well, we we made the appeal to the powers that be because we have to believe that somebody at HBO is checking out our podcast. We have to believe this. And uh, come on, guys. More, we're not asking for much all we're asking we, we closely review this show every week all we're asking for is updated credits so please next six episodes back half of season one i want to see new credits please we insist cut to the gentleman's club or some sort of parlor of some sort and bronze Jan is talking with masson mm -hmm. and the king's cousin apparently king, king's was it cousin or brother he he referred to the king as his cousin Interestingly enough, I was I was looking this up. This, in my mind, if he's referring to, you know, a king of England, confirms that this is alternate history beyond just simply events occurred in 1896 and changed the time frame. There is no king of England. There, they, they didn't even call Queen Victoria's husband 
the king consort of the king of England. And he's been dead for 30 years. This... Well, does it? don't they reference... Maybe I said this wrong. Don't they reference the queen later in the episode? Maybe this is the queen's cousin. But she, he still wouldn't be referring to a king unless he met a king of a different country. But he refer—I—I—I I, I wrote it down as the king's brother, but I may have gotten that wrong. So yeah, I don't know. We're all over the place here, but it—it's it, obviously someone who is close to the ruling monarch of England at the time. But it, what I'm saying is that they are clearly changing how the royal family is working for their own purposes, probably to insert the idea of this princess who also historically didn't exist, so that they can go maybe with that plot line later. But it's, this is an interesting. So far, at least, it's been fitting into a history that we knew for 1899 and fitting in events that happened in the past. This is a strong suggestion that, at least with respect to this, they're going a very different direction, probably for some later purpose. Okay. Yeah, that's a fair point. Uh, this guy, does, whoever this guy is, whatever uh, relation he is to the ruling monarch, uh, does not support the public hanging. They also refer to him as Prince Albrecht, which implies that he's at least a prince, maybe in the royal family of Britain also wouldn't have existed. And there also isn't, as far as I can tell, a Prince Albrecht of any period during this era. Again, they're changing history for a later purpose here. Yeah, and I very clearly wrote down that it was King... At some point, because they give this this quote, Bronze Yon gives this quote. Well, just let me get to it. Um, the, the guy is complaining um, about this public hanging and says it was outlawed years ago. He references his cousin, the king, and Bronzion says, oh yes, please remind us again who your cousin is because we wake each dawn having forgot. Mm -hmm. So at least Bronzion refers to him as his cousin. But anyway, uh, point point taken. Masson cuts in and tries to explain why this is a good thing. During this, Bronzion references the, quote, Certification Act and the, quote, Blue Badge Act. I'm going to pause there because obviously... In the five-week, two-month, whatever it is span, they have passed some legislation that I guess requires the touch to like certify, to go in and register as being touched. And then they get the they get the yellow ribbon treatment, right? They're getting the the, the blue pin or blue ribbon oh, or something that we see later call, in the episode. Call it what it is. It's the Star of David. Yeah. That, that, I mean, obviously, that's what they're going for. Um, so these things have passed. And uh, they start arguing about the treatment of malady. And one of the guys pipes up and says, quote, she's not in pain. That's the point. Pain gives her power. They finally explained um, it. Yeah. Ish. <laughs> yeah. So I was pretty frustrated here because, like, obviously we follow this show very, very close. We follow every line. And I, unless I'm just a dummy, which, pff, hand up, there is a chance of that. They did not make it very clear what her, t- what her, um, uh, turn was mm-hmm. up until now what her power was and they just flippantly give it to us in this and, and this is like a, a, a something we're seeing with the show over and over again it's like where we have these lingering questions what is malady's turn where is amalia what is malia's deal where is she from why is she different than the rest of the touched what how do we get these reveals casual dialogue between two random people and and because this five-week jump it really avoided a lot of chance to do kind of organic reveals for a lot of these things and really address how people were responding to them in the moment to just instead be just kind of back background lore dump which is a disappointing way of doing it it loses a lot of you know kind of natural tension or natural even just development of the show by just having all these things either happen off camera or just be revealed so casually yeah but anyway apparently malady's turn is if she's hurt if she's if she's if she feels pain 
it gives her, I guess, more power. So that would kind of explain some of the things we've seen before because we she can kind of in and out of superhuman power and it didn't make a lot of sense to us. So I guess that makes sense. But anyway, now we finally know what it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, Masson cuts in, quote, Malady hangs as Malady, not as, someone anonym, not as some anonymous prisoner. This is a case where justice must be seen. Now, this is the first inclination other than just like common sense. The first little bit of, uh, I felt like, evidence we got that the judge was empowered to make this call. Yeah. And that Masson was probably part and parcel, right, of, of, of making that happen, of making that judgment happen. Now, we see at other moments in this episode that Masson is, to a certain degree, working with his little counsel here, but also working independently, even some ways contrary to what he's telling them about what, why he's doing what he's doing. In your view, from what we see both here and later, what is Lord Masson's purpose for making this a public execution? Um, I, li- I, maybe I'm not thinking of, I, the, the fact you asked the question makes me think there might be more to it than this, but I just assumed that what it was, was he was trying to intimidate, beat down, um, you know, sort of that German bombing of England in World War II, right? If mm-hmm. we just bomb it of neighborhoods, we will break their spirit. Like he's trying to break the spirit of the touched. Like that's kind of what he's doing by this public execution. That's what I thought. I, I think it's definitely an element of that. But the fact he later hires the beggar king to make some mischief also says that he's probably trying to still a bit of a riot too in the streets. Maybe even stir up pub- the degree of public kind of malevolence and malice toward the touched as well in the process to make this a feeding frenzy. I will say this, that like I'm on a pretty good run of when I pick the booby prize for somebody, um, for them having a spike the following week. It's almost like it's almost like the reverse of how I buy stocks. I always ah. buy high, sell low. Like it's kind of the same sort of deal. Because this guy, man, I was like, no, Lord Masson, he's his character arc is the worst. And now we figure out he's behind like basically everything. everything. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, someone brings up um, the idea that killing Malady in this way may inflame <laughs> bonfire. You know, yeah, yeah, she's yeah, touched. Yeah, anyway, yeah. the touched. It's dismissed by some guy. He looks like to be some sort of general. At least he has like a. Sort of uniform what? on, just random general who's sitting there, mm-hmm. um, who's with them, who says he's deployed troops around the square. Masson then see now subtle point here, but it seems like Masson gives this general a bit of an order, um, which I thought was a little shocking because he basically says your men don't need to make sure they're not dressed up in uniforms. Quote: Nothing resembling martial law. We must keep control, not seem to be dras- grasping for it. This guy, like, controls some part of the military, and Masson is telling him what to do. It, so It doesn't appear that Masson has any formal position. It, it doesn't look like he's actually even necessarily a member of government. He's just a lord, but he's operating as kind of a shadow prime minister, from what we're seeing. It's, it's very unclear to me how much power this guy has, but it's clear he's got a lot. Because, like, <laughs> it was just very weird how he just told, like, this general is just sitting there, and he's like, yeah, and by the way, do this shit. Like, what? If, if you're expecting this show to set definite limits on how people's powers work, you have not been paying attention. You don't think we're going to get, like, very clear lines of uh, of power and, and reporting structure we, from we ha- General Mass? We haven't yet, in any context of the definition of the word power, I don't expect it to follow. <laughs> that's the frustration i was hoping to hear um yeah so then some other guy speaks up and says quote we showed our hand seeking that ghastly gunman cruise on mary brighton and for what there we go yeah. within a week the orphanage had doubled his roster so that's another reveal that we got in casual conversation that the mary brighton uh Cruz, who was let out of the guy with the the handgun literal handgun mm-hmm. uh who was let out of prison who shot mary brighton 
that apparently all came from Masson's groups. And Masson was just lying really good to Amalia. Like, this is a really solid lie because it convinced me. Apparently not that convincingly because at least the characters weren't confused. It seems like the characters were directly reading him maybe better than what evidence we were really being presented. It also is just weird. Why would he use that guy to do it? I mean, to offer, if, if he's trying to offer a degree of plausible deniability, oh, it was Malady's henchman that did it. It was you that got him out of prison. That's going to get back. They're already pondering you for exactly that reason. But I maintain that Amalia told Lavinia that this was going to happen. And we keep getting this sort of like these like explanations from both Masson and Lavinia about, oh, well, I don't agree with a darn thing he says, but my gosh, I love the guy. Like, I'm convinced there's a connection there. Um, they're the two movers and shakers we have in this show other than Malady as we see later so sure yeah maybe we'll eventually prove they're teamed up in some capacity or form Bronzion says that Mary's killing will cause a brouhaha but the prince cuts him off and says they took a vow to protect the empire not to kill for sport quote we learn nothing of the origin of the illness or the creator of these uh, horror points at some pictures of seemingly of dead people Mm mm-hmm you ignore my reports on the menace of electricity. Very funny. Uh, he cuts off. Uh, he's cut off and another guy says that there were some concerns about the princess's absence. And Masson clarifies the concern was also about his sympathies for the touched. And here's the kicker. How he shipped her off in the middle of the night. So um, I guess the, the thought there is uh, they're all sort of thinking that maybe she's touched and, and she's being hidden. Yeah, the Princess Bettina, I think they said her name was. Which, yeah, I didn't catch a lot of names. Which, which, they seem to be suggesting she's, uh, I guess, one of Queen Victoria's daughters, if they're calling her a princess, maybe. Do- doesn't exist historically. And also, they seem to be suggesting that she's relatively young, whereas Queen Victoria's, at this point, youngest daughter was 30, like, 6. So, again, we're getting a new character added in the royal family. That seems relevant going forward for their first kind of big break from reality. I feel like there's going to be like a segment of our audience who really is trying to map it to the actual British royal family that was around. And they're Yo. really going to appreciate you for doing this. I, they're going to I, really I, like for it. I was nowhere near this point. So thank you for bringing this to the podcast. Um, yeah. So it, it seems like that's what they're, they're sort of insinuating here is that maybe the princess was potentially touched on her own. And, and in the middle of this whole thing, the prince just stands up and exclaims, she has lumbago and everyone gets super quiet, head down, beat, beat, wait for it, mate for it, mass in. And we wish her a speedy recovery, a re- recovery, but our patient is, as you say, the empire and it requires a bloodletting. Um, another guy says there won't be enough. Uh, um, you know that won't be enough not for a lasting peace you know that won't be enough for a lasting peace yeah there you go but uh, yeah Masson just you know seemingly controlling the room here Mm -hmm. Uh, we cut to Amalia and Penance looking at some sort of picture of London Um, Amalia calls it made a new thing (laughs) and Penance uh, with the flair for names that we know and love from Penance calls it a Spectralocal or spectacle or something like that. Yeah, it's an extra. Yeah, Amalia. Yeah, Amalia doesn't really accept the name, um, but they move on. Penance points out where they need to uh, drill to get to the Galanthi, which has never once been mentioned or referenced on this show, and we have like nine characters just name dropping it throughout this episode with just. You, the audience will catch up kind of backing with this. It's like, 
Very strange. When, when, the did, they, when did they all talk about this? Here. Here's how confused this confused uh, this made me. I was like Googling Galanthi. Like I was trying to figure out, is this a thing that I just didn't know about? Like a word that just exists out there? No, it, it's nothing. It's just something that the characters know about that we don't know about. And we can only speculate at this point in the episode uh, what the hell Galanthi is. I swear, how many episodes of this show were left on the cutting room floor? Just like, eh, do every third episode. They'll be fine. I don't know, dude. I mean, it, I, I'm starting to believe. I'm starting to believe that like a, there is um, that maybe there was a plan for this plot to be maybe two seasons, mm-hmm. and for whatever reason they condensed it, and they had to figure out a way to jam it into a certain amount of episodes. That's the only way I can explain it. Because how in the hell do you just drop this thing Galanthi in here? And and so I'm going to give you my thought when I was watching this, what I thought it was at this point in the episode, you tell me what you thought. Mm-hmm. I thought it was the orb. Yeah. I, I still think it's the orb. Yeah. Yeah. It, right. It, um, it, but my God, I mean, it, how, how were you supposed to piece that together? It's one of those things of where all of these reveals are fine. We're with them. We can play catch up pretty quick, but they're just so inorganic in terms of how they just, uh, we're just going to name drop something entirely new. No context, no explanation, no build up to it. Just, the name of the friggin' orb everybody now knows. Yeah, the audience will be fine. Okay, so let me play a little devil's advocate here because we're obviously crushing the show for this style, which is where they they just sort of throw things in that are big reveals in casual conversation between two characters. Mm. Um, is there an argument to be made that that makes each individual scene and what would normally seem like a eh, kind of benign conversation really riveting and like, on the edge of your seat because you don't know what else they're going to give us at any given point in the episode. Nah. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) No, I I don't like that style in terms of doing those kind of reveals because it doesn't give the audience any time to actually come come to grips with them. It doesn't take any time to realize they're important or even, you know, understand them with the characters, even have it fit into kind of things. Particularly since you're having people name drop these things like five episodes in when they've already introduced the concept several episodes earlier. But nobody named them those things or talked about them or discussed them in any way. And now suddenly everybody's on the same page because conversations have been happening off camera. It's very strange. And I'm not sure I know of another. I don't know of a, a modern comparison where um, a show gives you reveals this way, especially a show that relies on reveals as much as this does. I mean, it's fantasy. It's world creation, right? It's mysterious. So the, the reveals are really, really important. Mm-hmm. And it's why you watch. And... I've not seen another show give us reveals this way, so it is taking me by surprise. It's 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 surprise. It's 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 abrupt to me, and it's a little weird. But I, just in our conversation, I don't think I dislike it as much as you do. I I, I kind of dislike it for the same reason that I like I dislike the, like the cutaway the cutaway gag the cutaway gags on Family Guy of where it's reveals without buildup or setting or organization. It's just reveal after reveal after reveal after reveal. It's just they're throwing idea balls at the screen. And that doesn't work for me in terms of just a way of enjoying a show. It makes for entertaining minute by minute, but it doesn't make for a very comprehensive or well, seemingly well-structured whole. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I certainly did not like how they did this with Calanthe because it was really confusing. Mm-hmm. Now, earlier in the episode, how they gave us Malady's turn, um, 
it was weird. It wasn't it wasn't how I would expect to learn that information, but I didn't necessarily hate it the same way I'd, I'd do this because this is this is ultimately very confusing. And I I like to I like to uh, give shout outs to the casuals out there. Mm-hmm. I'm always trying to speak to the casuals. <laughs> I feel like the casuals have no fucking idea what Galanthi is and heard it and went, whoop. I guess I'll figure that out later. They even like and again they've done this several times of where they'll just na- they'll just reveal something without any prior buildup or explanation, just kind of midway through the show, and then they'll have a character lamp shade it later. We have Amalia later even directly say, I know I haven't explained this concept well yet. And then just continue with a conversation about, you know, on the subject of Galanthe. It seems almost like the show, is this the show apologizing or making mockery of itself? Could be a little column A, mm. but a column B. Now, uh, Penance points out uh, where they need to drill to get the Galanthe, which is apparently right in the Grand Abbey. Nimble apparently has scoped the place out. It's heavily guarded. We get a cutaway to the place, so we see that it is guarded, which would... M- jive with it being the orb right because we know that darth lavinia has stormtroopers out there protecting the place penance explains that uh go ahead i love that you just breezed over the fact that nimble is now part of the orphanage because the episode does too yeah yeah nimble's a part yeah it's it's all good it's all good i I, look i i assumed nimble was part of the orphanage back in the last episode when i told you that nimble was now part of the listed main cast on hbo's website (laughs) when i saw that i thought yeah that i will just start seeing nimble everywhere Sure. Okay. Penance explains that she studied the angles and the best way to get in is the Royal Military Army. Penance says they have an opportunity. Only I ask what? And Penance says, this is the part I don't like so well. Boom, cut away. Uh, one, one fun thing here too. It, it, this is actually a, a perfectly fair because they actually show it later. Uh, what, what this is, is it's an x-ray taken from above in the city. And I was looking at that going, well, how the hell did she pull that off? They offer an explanation later that she's made a hot air balloon inside a carriage. So apparently she flew over the city and took a picture. Hmm. Yeah. Cut to Amalia and Horatio. Oh, and it in the throes again. I believe <laughs> the scene starts with Horatio getting dressed, but that didn't last too long. Amalia <laughs> is talking about the plan to get to the Galanthi, and she admits she's a bit scared. Scared that it might see that she's failed in some way. Again, I'm still thinking it's the Orbright because it it maybe it has a brain. It's part of the the alien crew that crashed there. Maybe it's the thing that was speaking to her through Mary. I don't know. These are the things I'm trying to connect. God. Um, yeah, uh, Horatio clearly um, supports this plan, but does utter, quote, it'll heal us, which Amalia, I thought strangely in the conversation, took him to mean like, oh, so oh, you think it'll heal like us hooking up like we're really sinful. Um, it was a strange reaction to his what he said. And it made me think that we're like everything else in the show. We're supposed to just assume some backstory here that they maybe bicker about this a lot. And when a, when a character calls another character out, unless they're penance, they're usually right. So it, though it didn't feel like what she was saying was reasonable, it, maybe she's correctly reading what he meant behind that con- that point. It, I, I don't know. Hard to, And hard to tell from his reaction because he he puts up the, and, and look, you've, what, same girlfriend 10 years, Spencer? You know these hands. The the hands up. Uh, okay, dear. Okay, dear. I'm backing away. Right. I'm backing away. All right. Shh. Yep. That, that sort of look. Yeah. He gave her the, okay, dear. I don't I don't want to get into this anymore. <laughs> um, it When he sticks the, the okay, dear hands up, uh, she counters, very rare counter move to the okay, dear hands with the finger suck, which I thought was very... Uh, a very powerful move. Uh, and then the sexy time commences. Indeed. And um, one thing I'm, I'm just enjoying pointing out about this show is that when they give us these, um, give us these scenes, they give us the on the nose, no hint of irony. 
we're just giving you the perfect music in the background. Like yeah. this was erotic, mysterious, sexy time music, and that's what you get for a sexy time. Scene. It could like, <laughs> it could have been straight Barry White for the purpose this music was. <laughs> I just love how they do that. They're just like uh, whoever's doing the whoever's doing the like the background music. I'm not talking about the actual score, but like the sort of background it's music. On the nose. That person that person might be mailing it in just a day. Um, <laughs> Uh, cut to the orb. Um, I guess we can start just saying cut to the Galanthi. No. And Darth Lavinia <laughs> this, this is feel, watching. This feels like naming it Grogu. It's like this is this is the moment the audience is like, meh, I don't know how I feel about that name or not. Uh, completely disagree about the Grogu <laughs> name. Really liked it. Uh, but we will fight that battle I'm, on another podcast, indeed. which we have. Uh, it pulses with light again. And uh, she comments that it's hatching. Spencer's favorite doctor, second favorite character in the show, Dr. Edmund Haig, makes his appearance in the episode. Tells her it's not so much as hatching, but it is changing uh, shape. It's a chrysalis. Lavinia then says to kill it. She notices a crack in it and says if it can crack, it can break. Um, she, Darth Lavinia, while she clearly is orchestrating all of this, seems to have a very rudimentary understanding um, of this thing. And Dr. Haig, um, you know, being, being very nice when he explains certain things to her, but it seems like even that idea he sort of brushes aside and he says um he stammers his way through a rebuttal he says he did he did point out something though in this sort of stammering rebuttal where he says they're laying down the tracks and they're going to be wheeling it miles away from the city so yeah here's another reveal what they're planning to do with this thing it seems spencer correct me if i'm wrong Mm -hmm. is there they seem to be knocking away the the earth around it and they're going to try to move it somewhere else yeah the, the idea seems to be is that they assume this is some equivalent of like a bomb or at least an active threat for whenever it hatches or emerges from its chrysalis and they need to get it out of town or kill it now because Lavinia is starting to get worried that it's about to emerge. Yeah, and, and in that vein, Lavinia's quote here, our hopes for a cure were childish. Its power grows by the day. There's a fever spreading through London. So she's connecting maybe like how the Londoners are acting very strange with this thing pulsing and seemingly growing and gaining power. And then she says that they're on the eve of a public execution. Dr. Haig, with the super cringy line here, really didn't like this one. Mm. Just going to throw this out there. Uh, when we hang someone in America, we watch. Mm. Come on. I've previously previously pointed out that I appreciated that when they gave us an American character in London in 1899, at least they made him um, at least they made him educated because they were getting away from like the swashbuckling Texan. Right. But of of course, they get well when we kill somebody, we watch it. Boy, how it. So so let's interpret what they're doing here now, because now we have a little bit more information about what their purpose here is that appears to be they're building a railroad to ship this thing out of town and their means of doing that is to use lots of captured, lobotomized-ish touched. That's the part that makes no sense. That, that seems no, really that, inefficient. Yeah. Well, we we talked about this in another episode, right? It's like you just hire people. Yeah. Or like, they're just immigrants. I'm sure you can hire for this or, work. It's unclear why. They've never connected the dots why they need it to be lobotomized touch people. And if this is an active threat, and you know you have government connections, just, you know, talk to the government. Get some funding and backing. Lord Masson wants to get this thing damn well out of town, I'm assuming. Can you imagine how fast? Lord, I mean, look at what Lord Masson did breaking the strike on the docks uh, in the last episode. You know how fast he could get you unskilled labor? Oh, yeah. Like that. In a, I mean, in a just, damn hard in a call, Darth Lavinia. Yeah, he could he could he could ship um, over the entire nation of the, the entire component country of Ireland right now to get this moved. Easily done. 
Dr. Haig um, then gets down very close to Lavinia and says that Malady killed people he knew, and he's still just a man who has rage, pettiness, and hope. He says that two of them have been more exposed to the Galanthi than anyone, and they haven't suddenly lost their moral compass or sprouted wings. So I think the point he's making here is, um, well, first off, he's, he's making the point like, I'm pretty, I'm glad they're killing Malady whether they're killing her, so just put that out there. Mm -hmm. And then I think he's saying, well, you know, your concerns about the Galanthi, like, like, while they're legitimate, like, we we are here all the time and we haven't really lost our minds yet. So it may not be 100% uh, fair to connect the fever pitch running through London with this thing. And it seems also that the two of them have different interpretations for what's going what's going to happen when this thing opens up, of where Lavinia seems to think it's going to kill everybody. Whereas the doctor seems to think that this thing may run a risk of giving lots of more people powers. Because he's even saying, you know, we've been around this thing a lot and we haven't developed powers yet. So clearly it doesn't really work that way. Or at least it's not, well, not yet Well, lost their moral compass or sprouted wings. Yes. So he's both. He's, he covers both yeah. places. Um, he says if Satan himself is in there, I doubt he's a match for Lavinia Bidlow. And now I'd like to pause and just point out the very unnecessary sexual tension between these two characters during this scene. <laughs> Just, he is oh, he is caressing her needlessly <laughs> so many uh, times. Unnecessary. It's uncomfortable. These it's very characters. uncomfortable. It's already sort of a hard to follow what? thread going on here. They don't need to throw in some sexual tension between these two characters. It's very strange. And I, I assume that Lavinia was put off by it, but not directly objecting. But that doesn't seem to be in her character. It seems like her character would just be the slap the shit out of him if he was like entirely, you know not consenting to this so i because of what we know about lavinia i took it to mean she was they were already like in some sort of like weird romance because she would yeah. have obviously told somebody else to f right off this is that yeah that's how i kind of interpreted my default was saying he's a creepy bastard and he's touching her without his, without his consent but lavinia would not just seemingly just take that i was about to say sitting down but i'm being i just need to stop with those jokes oh damn I need to stop with those jokes i'm sorry <laughs> i don't that. mean to do that <laughs> But yeah, said that was a that was a weird scene. Yeah, the thing pulses with light. He puts his hand over Lavinia's face. Lavinia says they're taking a big risk. I guess taking a risk by allowing it to, to stay there alive like now. Yeah, um, yeah. And Doctor Haig quote: uh, "If we've lost hope, it already has." I wish they'd spend. I wish we'd spend a little bit more time with Lavinia to build her up as being, you know, a character justifying the line. If Satan himself was in there, I should think he would not. He wouldn't be a match for Lavinia Bidlow. It's like. They've, we've had a lot of people talk about how awesome this character is and her influence, but now that we know that it was Lord Masson pulling all the strings of these other things, we haven't really seen much of Lavinia or what she does. Well, I think here's what the show's going to do. If the show if show writers are here, here's what they're going to tell you. Here's what they've given you, Spencer. Begrudging respect from Masson. Mm -hmm. some, some sassy lines. Puts people in their place. Okay. There you go. You got what you need. No, <laughs> no. I'm not satisfied with this show. We do get a couple more scenes for this episode, though. Cut to the orphanage. Two ladies are struggling with one of the big doors to the orphanage, and we see an older Asian lady. I don't think we've ever seen her before, have we? We we've seen we saw her in background when the touch were kind of revealed when uh, Bonfire Annie you know lit the flame and all the touch were there in that courtyard in that courtyard around the orphanage. She was one that camera oh, yeah, focused yeah. on for a so couple she, seconds. Yeah, we saw. So she's new to the orphanage from the from Mary's song, and, and she, uh, she just reaches out to one of the doors, uh, and. Pfft, Flaps shut. So we now have our first actual superpower. Like she, this is the actual su super strong super power. Yeah. yeah, we actually have someone who is super strong. Mm -hmm. uh, then my girl Desiree, favorite character in the show, is reading to Primrose. Of course she is, because she's a good egg. Mm -hmm. She seems to be reading Effie Boyle's article on Malady, and it's going to shock you here, Spencer. But it is not. It is not the most critical of Malady. Ah, uh -huh, um, look at that. Uh, she's arguing they shouldn't kill her. 
uh, what, cut what, to bonfire. Question. Go ahead. This is a debate I have with a lot of the characters' objections to what is happening. Are they objecting to executing her, or are they objecting to executing her publicly? I don't know if everybody's on the same page when it comes to those objections. Everyone is not, and it is unclear where Effie's at with this. Um, but it does seem like Effie's... Uh, what she's writing is she's against it because in part um, of how like sort of um, barbaric enraged and and, yeah, feverish everybody's gotten over this thing. Um, (laughs) Which we later learned the point of all of these articles is to cause exactly that reaction. Yeah, for sure. Uh, Cuts a bonfire at nimble who are engaged in a very high stakes sparring sparring session. Yes. Um, What? This is, I mean, I've heard of like, I've heard of like boxing without the pads, but my God, and, this is uh, and, this is very high stakes. And it's like they're far, it's like they're you know deflecting bullets in different directions in the middle of a crowded square. It's like they're she's throwing fireballs and he's blocking them away as people are just around. It's like can't you find a room to do this, please? It's pretty pretty weird. I mean, I know that if I was at this orphanage, I would be put off with these two. I'd mm-hmm. be like, uh, we get it. You got powerful turns. Could you take it inside? Mm-hmm. I'm um, tall. Then. Yeah, nimble. But one of, one of the low-key funny moments of this whole show, or this whole episode to me, is they're making the little small talk before they start this sparring session. And um, <laughs> Nimble explains, is is like explaining to Bonfire, like in a sort of way that friends explain things, right? Like mm. in a sort of like, yeah, yeah, tr- you know, like here's something I found. That talking to Desiree really re- is relaxing to, to, to uh, Nimble. Mm-hmm. It, it, quote, takes the weight off. Like, it just was a funny thing to me because, like, they all know her turn. And Nimble has leaned into this and said, yeah, I don't care. Like, I'll just go and just sort of, blah, blah, yeah. just, like, let it all out. And it feels good. He's using her, like, group counseling, essentially. Yeah, and you're saying he, Nimble does refer to himself as he. He does. Yes. Well, he refers to himself as male. But, right. But but we have uh, we have some other uh, the, the show has already has told us in other forms of media, not necessarily show, but like just in like news releases and stuff that this is supposed to be like a gender non-specific person. This is like a, a you know, the, the, I don't know. The concept what I'm literally to say did is, not exist in 1899. So there's only so much they can do with this. Well, I don't think they care about that. Yes. I mean, it's almost like a Bridgerton type thing. Sure. Right? Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm stumbling through this because what I'm trying to say is if we screw the pronouns up, we're sorry. We don't mean to be. It does seem we're, that he, we're, we're, Nimble, refers to himself as he. So we're going to say he, but we don't mean any offense. We, we are literally working off the only evidence we have from the character before he makes a direct yeah. comparison of we males are such and such. That's what yeah, we're going yeah, on he here. He does say that, but and that really confused me because they made such a big deal about the fact he was a non, gender non-specific person. But anyway, uh, whatever. Uh, then we see Harriet and Anil fighting. They seem to just fight all the time. These two, like, you know, besides if I'm Lee is at the orphanage, besides being put off at this weird sparring session, I would be just tired of Harriet and Anil fighting already. But, um, do we, as do we ever know what they're out, actually fighting over? She mentions her eh. studies a little bit, but I don't think they were actually explained. I think we're getting only one side of this, obviously, because Harriet is the only one explaining it to us. But Harriet seems to keep going back to the fact that Anil is jealous of her, frustrated with her because she knows the law better than he does. Eh. Yeah, I don't know. Cut back to Desiree. She's reading the Effie article again. And she, by the way, she's reading it to Primrose. Uh, yes. Who is like in a, some sort of like, they have like a building that goes up like to her waist. I don't know. That's what they, best thing they've concocted for our poor girl Primrose. Mm-hmm. Effie asks if the sight of Malady swinging will bring peace to London. Desiree posits that maybe the Gathanthi will whatever they are, 
<laughs> the Galanthi will, whatever they are. So uh, Desiree speaking for the audience there. Yeah. Um, just sort of like, well, whatever the hell that is. We're, we're never going to tell you. <laughs> One of the touched, a guy who I'm not sure we've ever seen before, a younger guy, ask if you can even hang Malady because she gets stronger from pain, right? Harriet points out, well, she gets stronger from pain, but not not death. Like, she gets strong when you kill her. She gets strong when you hurt her. Yeah, but apparently she can shrug off bullet shots straight to a lung, which, and again, just someone hammering her head into pulp. All of these things have happened, but she's able to shrug them off. Maybe it's because the pain also triggers a certain degree of extra damage resistance. Again, we only have one brief offhand line to go on here about how she works. Well, I, look, I'm not going to say the show's consistent. I'm not saying that at all. But I would say that, like, we, maybe, like, Harriet's point here, we can't take as canon. She's just making that point. Yeah, we don't she know knows if that's true. No more than we do. She's never even met Malady. Right. Primrose then asks Desiree to read the end. Effie posits that hanging Malady will expose a crack that will release a venom, making Maladies out of us all. Eh, are you starting to get a little evidence of maybe our girl Effie? Anyway. Yeah, this um, seems seemed like, okay, what are you really trying to do here? Really? I just uh, I just could see Effie Boyle up on the stage with a crown of thorns, just screaming and yelling and ranting crazy. Oh, it's, uh, yeah. She's starting to go down that road of kind of being a little kooky. Yeah, which even the characters, after she says that line, a lot of them who were previously on board with her, several of them say, don't know if I agree with that one. Some of the characters yeah. go, well, that's, that's kind of flashing her hand a little bit, isn't she? Yeah, yeah, Primrose says, well, I don't like the idea of that at all. Yeah. Um, Primrose, by the way, um, of all the characters, has Primrose said one thing that is objectionable? No. She might be the only character batting a perfect game so far. I, I thought I was not going to particularly like her characters. I thought they would have nothing really to do with her. They still haven't found much to do with her. They did last episode a bit. But I've come to like her character quite a bit just because she's so sweet and she means so well and she supports everybody. And that's a good thing. Uh, Harriet goes on a rant about how there's no legal argument for the public execution. No, I'm nitpicking here. Might be being a little mean. I'm going to say it anyway. When she starts the line, well, there's basically there's no you know legal basis for this. I don't know if this is Harriet doing it or the actress doing it. We should make fun of it. Whatever it is, totally goes into lawyer mode. Like, yeah. totally is like arms flailing, walking about the courtroom. She does. <laughs> and and it, it fits because she wants to be a lawyer and never can be. I was thinking about it. Yeah. Also, thinking about it more, I'm actually going to throw what I said about the show not really thinking of things to do with Primrose. They've actually done a couple really good ones in terms of her being a prop at Lavinia's party and her yeah, also playing a few things with her. Yeah. So, I'm going to withdraw that. Yeah. They've actually worked her in pretty well. This is another reason I like the character. And she's batting a perfect game. She is. Now I say that my 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 track record next next episode she's going to be with Malady doing some crazy shit. Admit, admittedly, as we see later in this episode, part of the reason she's batting a perfect game is by not always playing. Yeah. Then Harriet yells, "They are hanging Malady for being touched," which I'm not sure mm-hmm. I agree mm-hmm. with. A lot of people breeze over the fact that Malady has done a lot of damn things that would merit hanging under the existing law at the time. And I think this is kind of the genius. Uh, whatever Lord Masson's real reason is for hanging Malady in public, it's kind of the genius because it is made by doing it. It's so objectionable and it's re- it's uh, soliciting such emotions from everybody, the touched included, that you're making some of the touched kind of unreasonable. Because like for Harriet to say, well, they're killing her for being touched is unreasonable. But I think the fact that she's being hanged publicly and it's such a you know, a really uh, offensive thing to be doing mm-hmm. is stirring that emotion in her. But like 
there's obviously Harriet's not alone in feeling that she's doing this. I mean, Penance obviously adopts some form of this argument later on in the episode. And it's, I think it's really off base because I mean, they are not there. Maybe, maybe they're doing it publicly because she's touched, but they aren't killing her because she's touched. Yeah. I'm really there with you. They're perfectly right in saying that they're doing this publicly to send a message to the touched. I think that's probably true, particularly given who we think is behind all of this plan. But the willingness of a lot of our characters to just really breeze over Malady's prior crimes, really, it's only kind of a Molly that ever calls out that, no, 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 let's remember, she's killed a hell of a lot of people and will keep killing people if we if this doesn't go forward. Doesn't seem like a lot of our characters are willing to acknowledge that. Maybe they're just, again, they're so outraged that it's consciously putting it out of their minds and only just viewing her as a representative of them. But I, like you, it, I didn't really like how everyone's just so willing to just kind of wipe Malady's crimes under the carpet when it comes to just what they're viewing as she representing. Yeah, and it's like half of the half of the named touched people at the orphanage that we see when they're doing like you know the shirts and skins game. Like, <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable how many people we're, like went over and were with penance on. We this game, are going to get to that, but I found that the weirdest damn plot line they went with that. Very <laughs> strange. Cut to some sort of government building where the touched are being registered, and it looks like they have to wear. We talked about this: the blue pin or ribbon or something. So, and um, we see that when they register, they have to demonstrate the turn. And then we see um, very creepy moment. Young girl with the ears. Some guy's like, hey, come with me, young girl. Like, I got super creep vibes from that yeah. guy. Um, I don't think we're meant to think that where the touched are being shepherded by this government is a very safe place for them. No, and I find that legitimately surprising given the fact that Frank's now in a position of power. I wouldn't have pictured him allowing that kind of abuse to happen as going into this, but maybe he's just, it's so much going on, he doesn't have the ability to have oversight over everything. He might not be in that much, like, he may, you know, he might not have that much power. Like, again, to show, like, to your point, hasn't quite fleshed out all of Frank's power. So we might not know, he might not have legs to be able to do something like that, to be able to affect change in that way. But. He can stop a patrol officer from abusing a person. He could do that. He could set parameters gets, to stop that from happening. She gets justice from us. Uh, yes. Cut to Effie talking with Frank Mundy. And, all right, so this back and forth. Frank and Effie talking here, where Effie's asking for access to Malady. Frank's not giving it to her. Was that where you I, went? Oh, yeah. I had no doubt at all from that scene of where both in terms of her just suddenly spouting this incredible information that she'd have no way of getting unless she's secretly another genius detective character who's just having no clues to work with but assigning results and realize the actress, the character looks a lot like the actress and her voice exactly tilts into Malady's accent at various moments as she's talking. So here's the trouble. So this show went, uh, I'm going to go ahead and address it here. The show went a long way to try to turn one over on us, mm. to execute this ruse, folks. It included um, giving this, whoever played Effie Boyle, a fake name and a fake IMDB page. They actually did this mm -hmm. on the internet. Now, I mean, you could, t we, like, I mean, I was digging into all this stuff. Again, podcast professional. Mm -hmm. And I looked at this IMDb page last week, and it was very obviously fake. I mean, it was like one line. It was like they didn't flesh it out or anything. So they didn't do a good job of that. But anyway, the point is the show was really trying to perpetrate this ruse. And here's the trouble, the, 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 uh, this, the issue they were always going to run into, and I feel bad for them, is that this actress has to adopt a British accent mm -hmm. because she's in Britain. And so... Even when she's trying, she's trying to do the Effie Boyle. She still has to do a British accent, and, and because You're like, too much. if you exactly, if you tell me, Lee, do Australian, I can do an Australian. I'll save everybody. But you could I, do I, one. I can do an, 
I can do an Australian, but I can't do multiple Australians, yeah. right? And this actress can't do multiple British. So it was, I think if you had her speaking, you know, just naturally and not with any effective or, accent, maybe she could have disguised her voice a little bit better. But because she's got this accent, she has to sound British. It did really sound like Malady in this exchange. I mean, just make her American. You can have an American journalist in London. That's allowed. It, that that mo- moment with, between her having all the knowledge and her looking a bit like the character, the moment the accent clicked and I'm like, okay, I have no further doubts. I'm going to write the plot from here. It about just where sounded exactly like it. Yeah. And, and maybe maybe they didn't care at this well, point because it, it is this is the episode where they reveal it. So maybe they were like, eh, whatever. We can start, we can start dropping the breadcrumbs. But it was pretty obvious here. Yeah, I mean... It, if it's a breadcrumb, it's the size of a friggin' gingerbread house in terms of things. <laughs> the baguette. Yeah. <laughs> a line of baguettes. Effie posits that Frank may not want Malady hanged either. Frank, I want order. I want the wicked punished and the good protected. Put that on a t-shirt. That's a good line. I'm printing up my Frank Bundy t-shirts. Frank's the... Go- Frank's... Sell them at mangumtalks.com. Frank's rap, other than allowing abusive suspects within his precinct, we'll come back to that point, or not even suspects, just people... Uh, Frank is kind of framing himself as being the ultimate white knight hero of the show. Again, surprised we've reached that point with that character. Frank is the best. Frank points out that Effie just wants to talk to Melody to help her sales. Effie yells, my sales matter. Like, nonsense. Mm-hmm. Head, head scratching sort of um, a, a, a thing what? for her to assert. Given the context of the discussion, doesn't make a lot of sense. Why is he even allowing her in the building? Well, she's... She's a reporter. Yeah. And he's he's police, so he's got to talk to the press. No, it's England. There's no freedom of the press in England. Ah, whatever. I mean, I think that's the connection you're supposed to make. Okay. Um, Malady then points at a picture of a dead person and asks what it is. Frank says it's a murder. Uh, some of the guys are trying to pin on Malady, but there's no idea. No uh, one missing who fits the description. Effie, I have that coat or that style. It's popular with working women. And this yeah, makes yeah. Mundy look up. Mundy goes, oh, that was a little strange. Um, Effie goes on to say that she posits she was working with a woman who was out all that, that this person who died was probably a working woman who was out all the time. Maybe a secretary or a secretary. Mundy seems disinterested in all of this. He seems interested at the beginning, like a little bit of suspicion, but ultimately uninterested in all of the specifics. And finally says, you put a name... Uh, on it, I'll take you to Malady myself. Effie, you mean it? Mundy, I do not. Yeah, I like that <laughs> line. It, it, it's, it's one of those data dumps of where I think Mundy's almost put off by how detailed it is because it, there's only two ways of explaining that. Either A, she's bullshitting, or B, she did it. And he has no reason to believe option two, so he goes with option one that, okay, she's just making shit up. Yeah, that's that's kind of what he, what he lands on. Cut to a hotel where it looks like Lavinia and Augustus are having lunch. Not a fun-looking lunch. No. Just gonna throw that out no. there. I mean, if you're gonna take the time for good sit-down lunch, which look, not of all, not all of us do, right? Working professionals, how many times do you take the chance to sit down to a good, good lunch, Spencer? Not often, right? Nowhere near I enough. I definitely don't want to do it with these folks. Don't want to do it with my video. <laughs> uh, the scene starts with Augustus wrapping up a banger of a joke. Are you ready for the punchline, Spencer? Mm. And after that. Turns out both the ostriches were feeding. <laughs> oh, you had to be there. Ah, oh, a banger. Uh, look, this this is not a fun jo- lunch, but uh, and through no fault of Augustus, he's, he's trying. He's, he's, he's trying. throwing jokes out there. Yeah, he's trying to, um, he's trying to like you know deal with the like social graces. Right when she gets a little bit out of line, starts yelling at other people. So I felt like Augustus did what he could in this scene. Lavinia seems off, and she explains that. Quote, it's a slight ache behind the eyes. So, I mean, it's about uh, 
subtle as a hammer here, but what we're meant to think here is that Lavinia is starting to get some physical reactions to seeing this orb and being down there around it as much as she is. Quite possible. They were having to, they were wearing sunglasses either because it was too bright or either because prolonged looking at it can also cause other issues. Who could say? Lavinia tells Augustus to steer clear of Hugo, especially now that his club has become public record. Bum, bum, doesn't bum. seem doesn't seem like Lavinia knows that Augustus is the owner of this club yet, which is baffling. Because if it's public record, that articles of articles of incorporation or whatever you call them in the UK at the time should also be public record. <laughs> and she's supposed to like be like I mean, Satan himself couldn't deal with this lady, so obviously she's got her finger on the pulse of everything, right? Mm-hmm. It's kind of strange that she wouldn't know this detail yet. But anyway, Augustus weirdly claims that Hugo is his friend. Um, <laughs> you, you, too sweet for this friend? one person. Okay. I, I almost wanted to like give Augustus a hug here and be like, oh, sweetheart, you don't have a lot of like yeah. friends. Like This is tough if well, you think this guy is your friend. Consider his social circle from what we know about the men. He's got Hugo. Birds. Lavinia. Birds. 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 Penance. That's it. And, and birds. And yeah. more birds. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> more birds. <laughs> okay, you're right. It's Hugo and it's birds of various kinds. It's very true. <laughs> Did not catch your joke. Very clever. Uh, See what I did there? But, but um, man doesn't have a social circle. He has a few people and he assumes they're friends because they talk to him. That's It's sad. It's pretty tough, yeah. And, and I am I am starting to really like Augustus. Mm-hmm. Because I can see, like, they're writing this character as someone who, like, puts a lot of effort out there. Yeah, he's sort of weird and he's uh, not articulate and he's super awkward. But he does seem, more so than maybe a lot of characters that we have, to be good-hearted. He's earnest. Very much so. Augustus asks Lavinia if she remembers when... Uh, oh, she, she points out that Hugo used to be your friend as well. Uh, ask if she remembers when she took them ice skating and Hugo made her laugh all day. Good line from Lavinia. Slash Elena Tyrell here. Mm-hmm. This is giving me heavy Elena vibes. Uh, yes, he was charming at 10. Uh, Lavinia starts to give him a speech. She says the devil may take a pleasing form, but he dot dot dot. She stops because of the headache. Augustus, tell, Augustus tells her to see a doctor. Or I'll tell Hugo you think he has a pleasing form, and then you'll never hear the end of it. <laughs> That's a good joke yeah. with what we know of Hugo. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Augustus. Open mic night with Augustus. <laughs> then Lavinia overhears two other people talking, and basically they are saying they can't kill Malady fast enough, right? Mm-hmm. We need we need to just kill her, Bring kill guns. her dead, back up the truck, run back over, let's just kill her a hundred times. They also wonder if they could pay some child to hold a place in front of them, and I, as a, just a casual viewer of this conversation thought what a great idea get a place right in front hold on for the show folks just hold right on while you watch the show that would be really great mm-hmm. um well, they bark back also to- totally a thing that was a job back in the day for public executions was get, get somebody to hold your spot or just even help you even like give you little boxes so you could stand up to see the person hang totally part of the maybe, whole experience maybe they were right there in front you know, yeah you know right on it would have been good <laughs> Uh, they bark back that they aren't murders, and Lavinia responds, No, you just like to watch. At least Malady has a work ethic. <laughs> Oof. <laughs> I don't know about that one. That, that was <laughs> a weird of, line. It's like, that okay. was an attempt at a burn, but I don't know if that landed. <laughs> <laughs> what are you even trying to say with that one? Come on. <laughs> it is pretty strange. Augustus, maybe they're, you know, they they might be, because she seems really off here, and they, they might be just trying to write that this like headache is really affecting her, because that was a strange, like, we know that she likes to throw these barbs and to cut people, right? 
But that was a weak one. And we haven't spent enough time with her to know really where she's coming from and just in terms of her increasingly getting threadbare nature about how she's acting in these moments. It's like, give me a little bit more time with this character. She seems really interesting about what's motivating her to do, do her stuff. But there's only so much time in these episodes. And Augustus tries to do the move that you have done with me so many times at dinner where the person um, you, that I was just talking to, like, you just, uh, yeah, he didn't, uh, didn't, he just had a little too much. Nope. And Lavinia uh, yep. is not having it. What are you saying? Don't apologize for me. How dare you? I'm not someone's dotty mother. Mother, There are vultures everywhere dressed up in hats and fine silks. Uh, Lavinia then tries to compose herself, takes a sip of tea. Quote, yes, I was quite good at sick gating. Um, and then Augustus says, rings round the rest of us. So, uh, well, one small point here, and I, I'm not sure if maybe I've just missed it up until now, but apparently Lavinia did have control of her legs as an adult. She was a skater. Yeah. And, and Augustus knew that about her. So, uh, unclear when she lost control of her legs, but uh, she it, it wasn't from birth. Injury, disease, we'll hopefully find out more at some point. Lavinia then commands Augustus that he shall not be in the city the next day. I, by fiat, Darth Lavinia, command you to not be in the city the next day. The day of maladies hanging. Which is interesting. It's interesting how axiomatic she's being about this. What does this character know? Well, again, her and Madison. Hmm, who knows? Crossing streams. Crossing streams. Um, Augustus takes it right in stride, though. He says, a uh, good sport that he is, says he's going to Brighton. There's some building there that may make a good bird sanctuary, and he's working on it. Just, I got my notes here in parentheses. What a life this Augustus has. I mean, The idle rich, sir. The idle rich. I'm just going to go check out this potential bird sanctuary. That's what I'm doing tomorrow. He doesn't have a job, and Lavinia probably wouldn't even let him have a job. In fact, he runs a business yeah. or something he has to hide from her. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, pretty great setup he's got there. Lavinia, quote, yes, the more barbaric us humans are to each other, the more we pamper our pets. Potential line of the episode's got to be nominated. Mm -hmm. And then we have a response there from Augustus, or maybe the more we need them. Good response by him, and she has no really rejoinder to that. If anything, she looks like it actually kind of surprised her a little bit. Yeah, it did. It blew her back a little bit. And then I think also... There was this weird moment where she seems to see Augustus's doodles of like birds or whatever, and um, I, I, I I took it to mean she was sort of reminded, oh yeah, this is really important to him. I shouldn't be like making fun of it. I don't know if that's what that scene was meant to instill, but that's what I took from it. Between that and also between her insisting that he get out of town, I thought this was in some way suggesting that she may actually know that he's touched. Maybe. I, no, uh, no way to be sure. Again. What she knows or doesn't know is just a question for philosophers. Yep. During this, Augustus gets up to leave. Um, no question who's picking up the tab, I guess. I mean, Augustus makes no move. For, not even the token 20 you pull out and say, hey, let me let me cover mine. No, no move of that at all. Like, well, is it that or is it that? The, the, uh, is it that or is it that? Is it that, that they're, they're at the club? And so it's all part of their membership dues. It could be, but it looked like they were at a hotel. Because um, the the awning and the building outside said hotel something, so I thought they were just having lunch in like a hotel lobby, and it, and it, you know it just seems like you know she's the boss of the family, so he just he just assumes she's paying. But it just a little thing I noticed. She's the older sibling, and it's family money. Cut back to the police station, and we see your favorite character, Effie Boyle, getting some intel on Malady from some guy who seems to have heart eyes for it. Did you notice that he was kind of flutter fluttering for Effie Boyle? Just a bit, yeah. During their conversation, um, we hear Hugo yell, are you fucking playing with me? You're pressing charges. So 
Apparently what's happening here mm-hmm. is Frank received a complaint from a patron of the Ferryman's Club that one of the touched hurt him during one of these exchanges. Which is true. Apparently this touched person wasn't registered. So Frank is moving ahead with the charges and that's annoyed Hugo. Mm-hmm. Note that Lord Humphreys, who is the person who was the customer the, at the injured party Ferryman's Club, who has now filed this claim, was engaged with a guy during this. Now I bring this up because because of what we know about through the storyline of Freak Monday, we know that you know just being out there and, and having homosexual encounters is not something that you can do. Yeah, exactly. It's illegal, and it's certainly um, looked down upon in society. So mm-hmm. this would be a big deal. And he, you know, Hugo immediately puts his finger on that button, right? He's like, "Look, if this guy wants to go public, that's fine. I'll, I'll ruin him. I'll talk to his wife. Exactly. I'll talk to his wife about this situation." And Frank nips that quick. Yeah. Um, where are we at here with the um, what the recap? I mean, the, oh yeah, yeah. Um, go, ahead. yeah go ahead. Yeah, I mean they're going back and forth about the subject of where Hugo's just viewing this as it. Uh, you know, he's interfering with my business. He's being a dick. He was going outside of the authority. Whatever else, this isn't a real crime. I can ruin him in the media. Just how, how can dick. I make this all just go away? And Frank's response is basically, he was hurt. He was hurt in your establishment. He was hurt by one of your people, and that person's unregistered. And then, oddly, he says. That means they can't register a complaint themselves. So apparently, if you under one of these laws that happened off camera, not only are you publicly marked, but if you don't come out in the open, you don't have legal rights. Uh, or at least in that capacity. At least in that uh, capacity. And he's trying to really hammer home to, to Hugo here that you did wrong. This is going to stick. You need to make this right, not me. Yeah, and we, we do... He, Actually says that explicitly later. But before that, Hugo then just starts spouting off about how hard it is to be Hugo. Oh, oh my God, I'm working so hard. It, I am working sir, to the bone. Sir, it is hard out here for a pimp. Then says, of course, Frank, you know how hard I'm working. What a strange fate. We've become men with offices. Frank, yeah, it's like looking in a mirror. Uh, <laughs> and the sarcasm, sarcasm, super thick, not lost on Hugo. Hugo then ask how he makes the situation go away. This is to your point, Monday says, they need to register the worker, first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Monday says, he won't list his place of employment on the registration, but Hugo has to give satisfaction to Lord Humphreys, and that does not include threats. Mm-hmm. Going, uh, threats going to his wife. You have to figure out some other way to make this right. Quote, send him a fucking horse, or whatever you rich people do. Love that potential line of the episode. Mm-hmm. And tell Hugo, uh, he tells Hugo not to let it happen again, if he can't keep his people safe... Uh, Monty says he'll shut him down. Quote, you're not a man with an office. You're a pimp with a gimmick and you're playing with fire. Good line. And I I, I like his rage here because it's not rage that, you know, somebody got hurt. It's rage that he's putting his workers under threat with his carelessness. And that's a very frank response here about the rich, they'll get their satisfaction. It's the average person that has nobody to speak for them. You're supposed to be serving that job and you aren't. And I'm pissed at you for that. Is that really why he's mad, though? Because then he goes on to to say, start a sentence that he does not finish. I don't know how you always dot, dot, dot. Made me think there might be a little bit more there, but he stops himself. It could be some bit of personal similarities there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I think I think there might be some of that some of that history that we already know between the two of them that's fueling some of that rage as well. It starts to come out, but he stops himself and he boom, he gets back on point. Tomorrow we are going to kill a woman. 
for the public's entertainment because that's what London is now. It's Jack the fucking Ripper grown into a whole city. You're in entertainment. You should come. Get in the dirt. Smell the blood. Then you'll know what's on your hands. Potential line of the episode. And not just potential, but very strong nominee. Very strong nominee. I like that line of thought. I like where he's coming from on this. He's not objecting to her dying. He's pretty much on page with that. He's objecting to what the inevitable result of this will be is that it will cause a riot. It will cause a problem. It will destabilize things. And it's also kind of sort of something we agreed 30 years ago is barbaric. Why are we doing this shit? Hugo, Frank, why did you take a job you hate? Here's another pretty, great line coming up here. Pretty interesting. Yeah, back from back from Frank, because I work with the people who love it. Which is another great line, another deep insight into Frank's character. Yeah, yeah. God, it's hard not to really fall in love with Frank Mundy. I mean, they're just they're just making us. I mean, I feel like they might be setting up to like kill him or something because they're just making this guy so likable. And I I don't know why they keep driving it home as much as they. I mean. It almost, it's almost unnatural how awesome this guy well, is. I feel like they're setting it up for it to be revealed by the public that he's gay and then him be utterly ostracized and condemned despite how awesome we know he is. I think they're set, they're going to go in that kind of direction with it. I think you hope that's the direction they go in. I think they're going to kill him. <laughs> Knowing this show, who the hell knows? <laughs> Hugo walks out and who does he see? Effie Boyle. Yeah. Apparently she just lives at the station now. He asked her if uh, she had an ear to the door and she says she didn't have to. Hugo's infamous enough. She goes on to say she's not after his story, but Hugo picks up. That she is, in fact, after something. He very casually invites her out for oysters. He just, man. This guy is just slinging it all around everywhere. He's met this lady this immediately. Let me, let me have some oysters with you, lady. And the fact that it's oysters is kind of on the nose yeah. about what the goal here is. <laughs> I know. I love that they give him that line. I feel like that's what he does. Well, he just walks around like inviting everybody to oysters. For those that aren't familiar, oysters are famous as a, viewed, viewed as a folk remedy aphrodisiac. So that's where this is coming from here. Yep. Sexy time. Nudity bars. Um she skillfully deflects the invitation, though. She does proceed to tell him what she wants, but she does so in an inaudible whisper directly into Hugo's ear. Spencer, time to speculate. What does she want? Some, I really don't know, because it's not like she actually goes and talks with, you know, Malady. She doesn't need to. She's got everything that she needs to say with respect to Malady already. I really don't have a theory here about what she wants, other than to get in, to get what Hugo has, which is in touch with his collection of people inside his, uh, you know, brothel. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure either. That's uh, why I kicked it so, to the speculate, because so, I don't really have an answer. We know, we know Hugo has two things. He's got enough of a connection that he can organize a police raid on a place, so he's at least got to connect with a judge. And two, he has this brothel. That's all we know that he has. Cut to penance washing up. Now, I'm using a country phrase there. I just want to just point out for folks. Um, where I grew up, pretty deep, pretty very rural area, mm -hmm. old country folks talking, and they would say, I'm washing up. And what that would mean is I'm going in front of the sink, and I'm basically going to take my shirt off, and I'm just going to, like, do some cleaning up with a wash rag. Yeah. Like, that's washing Pit, up. Pits, face, neck, good. That's about it. It's not, you're not taking a bath or a shower. It seems to me that Penance is well, washing up her, so she's and, not directly out of a bath or shower. And in the world before, you know, regular, easy access to indoor plumbing and particularly hot water, this is how people really bathed historically most of the time. Yeah. While she's doing it, um, I think topless, although the camera angles are so funky, I couldn't really tell. She is. This actress clearly not going to be fulfilling the nudity bars for HBO. Laura Donnelly, 
I think it's in her contract. This one, <laughs> I don't think so. The way they did oh, this. Oh, God. They were very, very, very careful Ma- to avoid the nudity. Here. Main female character in an HBO show. Nudity is built into your contract. We're sorry. Uh, yeah, but uh, but not for not for Penance's character. Mm-hmm. So they, I think she's topless, but couldn't really tell. And she sees a bird and she thinks, oh, my God, is this Augustus watching? Now, I hate to continue to just just chant my name in victory but i did call this when we learned about what um augustus's uh turn was that we were going to have the scene where penance is going to look at a bird and go oh my god is this augie you directly we called that to... and then in the... yeah <laughs> <laughs> and me being me being the son of bird watchers i immediately looked at that bird and said no that's a red start that can't be it he only, he only uses crows and corvettes it's like so I, I, was, I was kind of ahead of the game there from a long history about watching birds Whew, boy, that was that was some Jedi stuff, and I'm not force sensitive. I mean, I have no <laughs> idea what you were talking about there. I'm here for you, um, man. Uh, but she looks, so she looks at the bird. She says, "Augie," and ah, ah, Augustus actually answers, "Why?" Because he had come to see her, and he was out in the common room of the workshop. What, Penance then yells, "Was he just? Was he just there?" Like, was it? So it, here's what I took. So I, I thought you might question this. Here's what I took this to mean. Tell me if it's if you took it that way, or if if my interpretation is absurd. It's, I felt like she was in the bathroom of the workshop. Mm-hmm. She left the workshop door open, which she shouldn't do. But he came in and was just thought she may not even be there and was just sort of waiting in the common area of the workshop. And when he heard his name, he kind of walked into a hallway. He didn't really know it was a bathroom and bang, there she was. That, that's a, it's, that is what I think we're being led to believe. Yes, that it was just a happenstance that he showed up at that moment at that time to overhear her to walk in for that embarrassing moment. Yeah. Um, Penance then yells, were you a crow? Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, Augustus doesn't understand it, but Penance follows up with what she means. Augustus, I was me, me, in, in me. I was in me. Uh, good, good there. Um, Penance then starts waxing poetic about the time, saying sin is a bloom and people are either doing what they ought not to do or nothing, probably talking about herself there. Mm -hmm. Then she says, it's like they're being tested, but quote, it's that dream where the tests are over and you've not found your pencils. Penance then gives him the rundown um, about what he, you know, were you, were you the bird? Were you looking at me? Are you sure? Are you sure? He denies it. Mm-hmm. Then he says, um, then, then he, she seems, so he denies it. And then she seems mad that he wasn't doing it. She penance really all over the place there. Seems like a part of Penance's personality you were really going to like. So I just wanted to give you a little space to talk about how much you're enjoying this dialogue. Nope. Not not rising to the bait here. Yeah, it was annoying. I think it was supposed to be kind of annoying. It's the best way I can understand this character right now is that she's all at ends just because of how unhappy she is about events that are happening in the public world, and she's kind of taking it out on, on Augie right now. That is more generous than I thought you were going to be about this. I did because I thought you were just going to you were just going to chalk it up to like penance is just like they write her in a super annoying way well, they, that like is kind of a waste of time. They do, but I'm willing to offer, I'm willing to give them an explanation for why they justify it in this moment. Yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't see that coming. You zagged. You zagged on me. I'm here for you. Anyway, then Amalia walks in and says, "Am I interrupting Augustus? Yes, please." <laughs> Funny and line. Then we move on to. On to something, Spencer. You probably liked better. Um, penance. So then Amalia asks Augustus if he's ready for the next She's made a new thing. It can go through concrete better than any modern diamond drill. Otherwise manipulate some birds. See, here's here's where I was confused. Because my understanding of Augustus' turn is he can control one bird. But the plan seems to be a big flock of birds create a distraction whereby Amalia and all of her crew rush into the Glanthi, whatever that is. That seems to be the plan. Yeah, that definitely seems to be the idea that we're going for here. 
One thing to note during this interaction that I thought was interesting, Spencer, you tell me if you, you thought of this. It looks, Amalia is very warm to Augustus here. So something, it seems to me in the past month, Augustus has been like, come into the, or like he is part of the orphanage because like Amalia is greeting him like an old friend. Wouldn't it have been fun to see that process from where they started off the last episode that we saw? She's nice. I would posit that she's nicer to him in this episode than anyone else she interacts with. Well, to the point that Penance is put off by it. That she, yeah. she looks over and sees that Amalia just kind of has her hand resting on uh, Augustus's shoulder. She's not amused. Doesn't like it. No. Augustus then asks her um, what she thinks they'll find, quote, down there. He says he knows he's not. He doesn't know what level he's at. Um, but, uh, he knows the thing is, uh, the Galanthi, uh, in the singular. So mm-hmm. this is what you were talking about earlier, right? We yeah. see this multiple times with characters where they, they talk about the Galanthi, but then they also explain that they don't know what the hell it is. And you can't tell if it's the show, um, just being super literal and, and saying, yeah, well, nobody knows what it is or kind of making fun of itself. It's a little tongue in cheek. It feels like it's con- intentional lampshading, which is, if so, is a weird kind of meta call. But, you know, you, you could just set it up. You don't have to joke about the fact that you're not. Okay, so hand up. I don't know what lampshading means. Is this it, like, is this, are you, is this like um, shipping? You going to teach me something here? This is an expression that you can Google. It's essentially um, the idea of, of pointing out a kind of flaw or a joke or an inconsistency in your own work. You're putting a lampshade on it so the light spreads around the room. Ah, okay. All right. Yeah, that. That may be what they're doing here. It's a little unclear. Amalia doesn't have a chance to respond to Augustus because Penance is getting started with her drill. Uh, Amalia starts to give Augustus an answer. It's vagary after vagary, but she eventually lands on, can I just say hope, which is what they're trying to do with the Galanthi. So, uh, yeah. Does that frustrate you as much as it frustrates me? (laughs) Well, it frustrates me even more that it's fine if they want to be a little bit cagey about what's actually going to play out, but we never see what happens. All of this is happening... All of what they're setting up here about what their plan is, about what Augustus is going to do, about what the purpose of going down there, about what they're going to find, all of that happens off camera as an unseen B-plot. So it's even more kind of taunting they're being coy about it. It's weird. But Augustus does respond with a pretty good line. I'm going to nominate it for best line of the episode. Probably not going to win. Mm. You could have only said that, which I thought was kind of sweet. It was um, it, then It, it was a ahead. fun moment between the two of them, too, because of how Amalia reacted to it. Because when he said that, she looked legitimately touched that he'd said it just along that line, that they'd become that close. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, no, you're right. And it it further just reinforces that all of a sudden, Amalia and Augustus, I guess, are close. Okay, who knew? Mm. Uh, Then the drill starts working, uh, blowing through some concrete, and going to be a shocker to everybody involved with the show. Mm -hmm. Doesn't Mm -hmm. work perfectly. Uh, Drill doesn't stop, seemingly goes just bust up the, the floor and goes into the ground. It's the embodiment of all of Penance's technology, of where it's utterly brilliant. It exceeds what we're capable of in the modern world. This thing is a diamond drill in terms of how it cuts through this concrete. And then eight seconds in, it immediately breaks. This is just the most recurring joke they've made with anything that Penance has done, with the exception of the car. The car seems to work. The car does seem to work perfectly, but it doesn't seem to have it anymore. Uh, Cut to what looks like a child labor facility, and uh, kids Mm -hmm. are making dolls. So this is like... um, this is like Indonesia, where they're making like little Avengers action figures. Yeah, um, they're this, making Malady dolls. <laughs> yeah, this is Indonesia meets like Fagin and Oliver Twist, because we find out that it's the Beggar King that's running this whole thing, and he's being as pleasant about it as you can, being being an overlord of child slaves. 
Yeah, they're told to hurry up. Malady hangs Damar. Then the Beggar King comes in, and then that's the reveal that this little um, facility is run by the Beggar King. And he does a little QC. Mm -hmm. uh, and one of those little suckers falls <laughs> down. He tells him not to rush and to get back to work. I'm just going to reinforce here. I'm going to say it once. I won't say it again the rest of the episode. Uh, Beggar King, very weakly written character. Very strongly acted. Like the inverse to how strong this character is acted to how weakly it's written is like one of the highest ratios I've seen in a show that I've really paid attention to. Like that it's is, amazing the difference. That is a really fun way of expressing this kind of weird mix that's going into this character. I liked that we got to spend a bit more time with him given how important the show wants us to lead to believe that he is. The sh this episode actually showed that a bit, but it's still so weird that how much they continually set him up how little we actually get from him as much as as you said nick frost is a great actor he does a great job with the little bit of little bit of dialogue that he gets but he then gives an order to bring someone around the back and oh lo and behold it's gilbert masson uh in Masson's person in, in person, person showing up to the other side of the tracks um he he, he addresses him gilbert masson captain of industry peer of the realm okay i can go with that title am i meant to call you lord Gilbert Masson, am I meant to call you king? So, you know, a little tete-a-tete -tete going on. Mm -hmm. uh, Masson is admiring the Tesla that it looks like the Beggar King just straight up stole. Um, oh, he got so, it as a gift, didn't he? Wasn't it a gift they promised him? I thought he just, I I, I didn't catch that part. Um, I, I, I assumed he stole it. When did they establish that he was given, getting it as a gift? I thought they offered him as some term as part of a transaction, but the, the details are fading into the midst. I thought it was part of a broker deal they entered into, though. Okay. I Like everything, I assume he stole it, but who knows. Masson mm. correctly identifies Pen Adair's, Penance Adair's work. Uh, the Beggar King says, it's fun. He lets the kids play with it, but it's not very practical because it doesn't <laughs> have a horse in front of it to soften a crash. Um, you know, Beggar King, not the brightest guy. Uh, really, now, really not very smart. To be fair, there's a guy named Ralph Nader who wrote a book about the lack of safety in early automobiles. So, you know, get out. There might be some credence to what he's saying here, too. Yeah, but saying, like, I would rather run into the backside of a horse is pretty stupid. Yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> Beggar King gets down to business. The fuck do you want? Uh, Masson, uh, I want London under control. Masson goes on to say he wants um, them all protected from monsters. Beggar King says Masson... Um, Beggar King says, um, Malady stretches tomorrow. They've used this phrase a couple times, though. somebody stretching. Did you, mm -hmm. Have you ever heard that phrase before? I've heard hanging? it a little bit, yeah. I'd never heard that before the show. I thought it was pretty funny. So I guess all is well, but Massing goes on to point out that Penance created something that men of industry had worked on for years. And finally, somebody is just talking about the fact that she just created a car, which apparently mm -hmm. <laughs> everybody had been trying to do for a long time. Uh, we get a good quote here from Mass, and a thing that threatens the natural order by definition is monstrous, even if it's pretty. Fun line, fun line. Beggar King then says he doesn't think Masson came there because he was scared of little girls. Hell, he gets ugly men to kill him. We get another reveal here. In comes Odium, and Beggar King explains that Odium was sent to kill Amalia True, but not by him. Quote, now you look me in the eye, hand on heart, and you tell me this man is not ugly. Little odd phrasing there. Might be hard to follow, but what he's basically saying is, you tell me you didn't send this odium to Amalia. Mm -hmm. uh, Masson, great quote from Masson here. I see only a soldier who was laid out by a woman. One-fifth is fighting weight. True. Yeah. Maybe. Very true. That is that is accurate. Was the Beggar King expecting Lord Masson to be intimidated? Because no. if so, he doesn't know this man that well. No, he doesn't care. Um, completely brushes off the fact that Odium gets up there and gets in his grill, and then Beggar King 
seeing this isn't going to work, just, you know, handedly dismisses it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Masson again starts his pitch that they're going to have to stop the touch and the beggar king cuts him off. Quote, you know why they call me the beggar king? Because I had fuck all and men followed me anyway. The touched are going to change things. So did the fucking longbow. I'll adapt. That is a really good line. As I like much as I have shit line. on the writing for that. But in, and part of my problem isn't necessarily the dialogue with the Beggar King. It's just how he's written in the show as a character. His character yeah. arc, right? But that was a pretty good line. Particularly for yeah. an English audience, too. It's like, yeah, yeah the English are going to appreciate that one. Yeah, I thought it was really good. Masson says he's not looking for an ally. He has a job. It pays well. My man's doing all right. He's okay, mm-hmm. everybody. And mm-hmm. Beggar King likes this. It was interesting... I felt like when Masson revealed this, the Beggar King said, okay, you've dropped the pretense. All right, let's sit and chat. So they sit down. Masson says they're looking for a cure to change things, but they are behind, reacting when they should act. Malady's hanging presents an opportunity to change that. The Beggar King asks if he thinks Malady will escape. And Masson says no, but her death will inflame things in the short term. Not a dumb man, this Masson. Not a dumb man. And as we revealed at the start of this conversation, a man with even more connections than we really thought, if he really did send Odium, send a message to Odium convincingly enough to convince him the Beggar King and sent instructions to kill Amalia. So I'm tipping my hand a little bit for best character arc, but this is obviously the Malady episode. But like, I felt like there was pound for pound almost more Masson reveals than anything else. I think we got at least three horses that are running a close heat to finish off this race for this episode. We've got options. BK then, um, the Burger King then assumes Masson wants his men to keep order. Uh, Masson says, well, on the surface, on the outside, yeah. Uh, But it's becoming apparent to me that uh, London is going to need to fix chaos. In order to fix chaos, it needs to see chaos. So what does he want from the Burger King? Just enough chaos. Mm-hmm. And this gets a smile out of the Beggar King. They seem to be on the same page. So, in essence, what's going on here is Masson is saying, um, yeah, I've been sent here to ask you to, uh, you know, have troops to control the situation when Malady hangs tomorrow. But uh, between you and me, just a couple of pals sitting around, um, it'd be nice if there was some chaos, too. It, it was interesting to see his style going in this conversation because it was like he's not used to personally interacting with the Beggar King and felt the need to hide the fact that he was just looking to bribe him. It's like, yeah, yeah, let me appeal to the better angels yeah, of your yeah. nature. Oh, that's not working? I also have money. There, that one works. Yeah. yeah. And I'd like, you to st- I'd like you to essentially generate an artificial riot in the streets. Can you arrange that for me? I will pay in cash. I have a job. It pays a lot of money. I have a lot of money. The Baker King, okay, well, why don't you sit right down? <laughs> Let's um, speed things along. <laughs> cut to penance. And she's putting on the... Um, uh, Putting on the girl. Oh, yeah, yeah. Putting some some of the girls down. Um, so apparently Penance is like their mother or something. She puts the girls down at the end of the night. And outside the room, she encounters Amalia. She says the girls are a bit jittery and Myrtle is angry. She can't go. Amalia says she would take Myrtle if she could. She speaks Galanthi, after all. So Galanthi now is a language as well. I guess that's the language that Mary was singing. I don't know. Um, Penance this says some of the girls are saying that Amalia killed Lucy. But Penance knows she didn't. And she wouldn't. Amalia stops her right there and says, well, I would. And that's how you know I didn't. Penance, hmm. quote, what about forgiveness? Forgiveness still exists in the world, right? Penance says she always said she won't make weapons. Uh, but some of her stuff could kill people. Uh, having a little bit of crisis of confidence we're seeing from Penance there in the evening. 
and I appreciate it. I actually like this aspect Whoa. of penance. I, I don't, I actually like penance. I dislike how they're using her. We've discussed this. I like the idea of a pacifist being put on the screen and supporting operations in a way that doesn't directly bring about violence. I like her very well-meant, heartfelt sense of trying to avoid violence in the world. You don't see that on the screen that much in you know, th this kind of show, so I appreciate seeing it. It's going to go in horrendous ways here in a second, but right now I appreciate it. You heard it here, folks. Uh, Spencer really likes the plan to get Melody out of, <laughs> out of the hanging. <laughs> what aspect of what I just said led <laughs> you to that conclusion? Um, yeah, but uh, then um, Penance then makes the argument that um wait a second where are we at in this this thing uh, penance just expressed the idea what what about forgiveness does forgiveness exist in the world or do we come up with a cure was it kindness just a germ all along a good line yeah pretty good amalia starts to explain that the galanthi will know her heart the way that she does but they're cut off by a knock at the door and outside is a bunch of nooses hanging uh, up which is a stark visual credit to the filmmaking that is a haunting little visual they did of those just kind of bathed in the darkness and the mist over there okay heads. just gonna ask the question feel free to tell me i'm either overthinking it or it's a dumb question i'm just throwing it out there feel free to throw it right back is the images of nooses um to an american audience really the best visual that they should go for here Wait. or is that a, that not not Maybe the best idea. I think it's the one they're intentionally going for here. I think that's the kind of comparisons that they want to draw in terms of the mindsets of the characters of how they feel about this hanging. As we've discussed, we can debate how justified that kind of particular thought is, given Malady's the subject of it, but it definitely seems to embody a lot of the mindset the characters are bringing to this, of feeling that this is essentially a government-sanctioned lynching. Yeah, I... Yeah, I just don't know about the, the use of nooses as a visual in our media. Sure. I'm not, not super crazy about it. But you know what? I, I see your point, and I, I see what they're doing. And I, I guess it's effective. Penance says she needs to finish the drill. Obviously, she's got some work to do on that bad boy. And Amalia starts tearing the nooses down cutscene. Do you agree with you on the point you just said? A consistent issue we say with the show is that the scenes can be effective and yet still somehow come across as coarse. And I think the nooses kind of fits in that fits in that category. Very good callback to something, a pattern we've seen in the show. That's that's exactly right. I agree. Cut to Malady, who is, um, she's singing something. Do you know what she's singing? I didn't actually recognize the song. Poem from someone named Christina Georgina Rossetti called One Seaside Grave. And uh, this was a poet, a uh, songwriter that uh, lived in London from 1830 to 1894. So perfect timing. Yeah, it works for Malady to know this song. <laughs> and I, uh, Malady, Malady. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna just call her Malady until the reveal. Sure. But we all know what happens here. But uh, I thought I don't know. I thought it was a pretty effective scene of her just sort of being crazy and singing something. Well, it's it's another scene that also really highlighted to me that oh yeah, both this episode and the last one they're being really cagey in terms of showing Malady's face. Won't show her face. I noticed that too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, last episode, I already had the Effie Boyle theory. So I was like, the yeah. whole t like I was kind of losing it. It became obvious, but at the beginning of the episode, I was super excited because I felt like I was really piecing some stuff together. But like everything with the show, they have a tendency. No, I'm sorry if it's a little harsh to hit you over the head with it. Mm -hmm. um, cut to Penance the next morning and Amalia asked her how she slept. She didn't sleep. Penance then says she's figured out how she's going to save Malady Amalia. <laughs> what? <laughs> Say that again. <laughs> Molly it certainly takes umbrage with that. Explains, well, you do know uh, Malady killed a lot of people, right? This is a genuine execution of a real threat. Yeah. Someone who seems to be very unhappy. Um, I don't know about the unhappy part. I felt like 
Amalia was really stretching when she threw that into the argument. No, that, I, well, well, Melody's unhappy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Let's focus on the other. Let's focus on something she does briefly hit that. Okay, you're gonna rescue her, and then what is Malady gonna do from here? Probably kill more people, probably including you. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, Penance challenges the idea of a mercy kill, and Penance then um, uh, makes the argument that it's a further step toward oppressing the touch. Quote, it's a noose in a row of nooses next to a row of nooses. So she obviously just remembers the night before, and that's coloring the language she's using here. Um, Here's a quote from Amalia. You expect me to turn my back on the only power that can make all of this right, that that told me a month ago it needs me, so that we can prove to the public we're all in league with a psychotic killer. Totally agree with the back half of that sentence, confused by the first half. So it when it said it needs me, it told me a month ago it needs me. Is that Mary? Uh, Galanthi. Mary's Well, Galanthi through Mary. Yes. Okay, because I, as we've established, so much happens off camera. I didn't know if this was a reference to like maybe another time that she was told by the Galanthi something. Because I'm not sure that the timeline works out because she said a month ago, but we already know we had five weeks of testimony in Mary's... Um, no, that, that, that's a good point. Trial. This may per- be another, re- another event that occurred off camera because otherwise, unless either she's being loose with their terms or the judge being loose with their terms and there was no lead up to the trial at all, they went straight to testimony on day two. Something about this doesn't quite work with the timing. No, it doesn't. No, it, doesn't. it seems like maybe Amalia, and it would kind of make, I mean, it makes sense in the sense that um, you can start to fill in the gaps, right? That if Amalia about a month ago got told something maybe more direct from the Galanthi, maybe that spurred her to start using the phrase Galanthi, start hatching this plan to get to the orb and all of that. That could have been some sort of uh, motivating event that we just didn't see. I, I wish I could say in response to that something more than sure. Yeah, maybe. Amalia then starts to explain that doing this will only show society that the touched are threats. Amalia, making a little bit too good of a point, gets cut off by Penance, who explains that, well, I know you're not coming. I know you're not coming. So that kind of just abruptly ends the conversation, <laughs> uh, or at least the argument on if Penance is going to do this. Penance then says um, she's a part of God's world, and she knows she's supposed to save Mally. I'm going to pause right there and ask you a question. How do you feel about Penance, like, like in her, some of her speech, she hearkens to this idea that she's very deeply religious. How does that strike you with her characters? Does it seem genuine or a little like sort of uh, out of place? I, I wish they'd set it up more, given how utterly important it apparently is to this moment in this conversation. Because uh, I haven't really seen much of it. There's been a couple idle references or expressions before, but nothing indicating some like real all-consuming, consuming, well-held Christian belief that's going into this. Yeah, I could tell she was a Christian, and but she, again, I, like, yeah, it's a very good way to put it. I felt like a lot of the stuff she was saying was more like expressions, like idioms or, or things like that, as opposed to, like, deeply held beliefs, but I don't know. Um, inside of her, something, she says, uh, Penance says that inside of her, something snapped. Amalia questions if God told her to save Malady, and Penance <laughs> fires back, asking her, well, did he tell you to abandon Malady? Uh, Penance then questions if the Galanthi will look kindly on Amalia, allowing Malady to die. Um, I, I, I don't even know how we're supposed to ponder that question. We don't know anything about the Galanthi. We, don't, we know nothing. I don't even know how this is supposed. To, we're supposed to understand I, that question. But um, I, I don't. I, we have been given no basis to think that Penance even knows what the hell she's talking about when it comes to that line. The only source of knowledge we have from the Galanthi so far, even assuming that the voice is coming from the Galanthi, we're making that leap. Really, um, 
is that it wants people to do their own thing and come rescue it. That's all we have coming from it so far. Yeah, it's pretty strange. I mean, that 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 line just ventured into just complete speculation conjecture. Mm. Um, Penance also suggests that maybe the Galanthi could help heal Sarah, make her who she was before. Do we know Sarah? Do we? That's, that's the other name for Malady, isn't it? I guess could be. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. There you go. Nice. Appreciate that. With the assist there from Spencer. I'm here for you. Um, Amalia then asks if Penance's frustration is about what she did to Sarah. Penance then says, no, it's about all the girls, how they're feeling. Amalia gets quiet and says, you are not bringing her here. I mean, after many, many people shoot you and Malady stabs you because it's funny, she doesn't set foot in this place. So I felt like the whole conversation is a little absurd because Penance's plan is absurd. But uh, that was a good line from Amalia, like actually like putting a little common sense into this conversation. Uh, yeah. Basically, you can't, you cannot bring her here. Well, if she's going to c- completely divorce herself from responsibility in terms of protecting her, pl- her friend from an incredibly stupid idea that could pose an imminent threat to all touched everywhere if they go forward with it. Sure, yeah, it's a good line in terms of <laughs> trying to mitigate it, uh, a small bit of the potential damage that could result. Penance then reiterates she has a plan. Um, Amalia then said she's going to go forward with the plan to dig up the Galanthi. Contact the Galanthi, dig up the Galanthi. I don't know what the plan is, but it's something about the Galanthi, and she's going to it, by gosh. Mm-hmm. Um, Amalia says she has the drill. Uh, Penance has done her part, and uh, she's not going to turn her back on the Galanthi because you got a fucking pain in the ribs. The future of the world depends on what I'm doing. From Penance, the future of the world depends on the present. Isn't that why you were here? This is a line from Amalia, potential line of the episode. I know, I don't know why I'm here. I don't know how it got this far or what I'm doing next. I don't know what I'm, I know what I'm not doing. I'm not mistaking my pain for an idea. So let's go see who still thinks I should lead. Yeah, pretty good. Okay. And we reach our, you know, line in the sand, Alamo crossroads moment. Yep, absolutely. Amalia and Penance then go out into the courtyard and everybody starts picking teams. Oh, uh-huh. shit, Spencer. Greens versus black, shirts versus skins. Oh, God. Junior high flashbacks. Um, Amalia starts by saying she's going to contact the Galanthi as they've planned. She knows she's been vague about what that means. But it's the first step in figuring lampshade. out lampshade. why they are all there together and what they need to do next. Yeah, it's lampshade. There you go. I'm starting to understand. It's a concept. Um, yeah, it's pretty weird that she just comes out there and goes, I'm going forward with this plan that I understand I haven't really explained to all you people. But um, anyway, we're doing it anyway, so come over here. Do Marketing. Cut to Penance's stump speech. She says she's going to save Malady, going to stop the hanging quote. I'm going to pluck Malady from their bigoted claws and let the world see that the touched are not here to be slaughtered for show. So here's how the sides shake out. We've got on the one side, Team mm-hmm. Amalia. Uh, obviously Horatio knows where his bread's buttered. Boom, right there. First guy. First, first one on the on the uh, on the team is Horatio comes right over. Then we got the old Asian lady who's uh really strong and Bonfire. Mm-hmm. Nimble wants to pick Team Amali until Penance volunteers to ban because apparently he's very important to Nimble's plan. Nimble, who can be bought very nimble. Uh, mm-hmm. Goes over to Team Penance. That starts Team Penance. Team Penance is Nimble, Harriet, and Desiree. Come on, Desiree. My girl. Yeah. I was yeah. so disappointed in her for te- picking Team Penance here. Team Penance makes no sense to me. I would obviously be on Team Amalia. So I was just, well, just it, upset with my girl. It, it, it's not clear. 
It's not clear what exactly, we, we can learn a little bit what, about what Penance's plan is, but it's in no way clear what almost any of these people factor into it for. Yeah. Uh, well, no, I don't think they're, I mean, other than maybe, other than Nimble, Bodies. right? Yeah, it's Nimble's, just sort of people Nimble's essential, and they use uh, Harriet to kind of open a door. And everybody else is just kind of there. Yeah, I don't know. It just seemed like they were just like, sort of picking. Uh, but yeah. then Augustus, Augustus comes and Penance mm. smiles, and mm. he chooses Amalia. Did, you, did that surprise you a little bit? Honestly, no. Because I was so opposed to Penance's plan, and I figured Augustus would have the good sense to go, I'm kind of essential to Amalia's, and this one's really dumb, so sorry, I like you, but I'm not going to help you do something stupid. Yeah, bigger story... If- than Augustus picking Team Amalia over Team Penance to me is the fact that Augustus is even there. Because he <laughs> flatly told um, his sister, uh, Darth Lavinia, that he would not be anywhere near London that day. He was going off to some building that's going to be a bird sanctuary somewhere, obviously lied, and he's hanging out the orphanage, beca- orphanage because he's part of the plan. And so, you know, you start backing up in the episode. So when he's having that lunch with Darth Lavinia and he's telling her, oh, yeah, I'm going to be in this building, he already knew he was part of this plan with Amalia. Um, so I, you know, I, I don't, I think he was just straight up lying to her. I feel like we have a really wasted opportunity when it comes to this kind of situation of where we've got two separate plans, two essentially separate heists, and we don't get a single complete Ocean's Eleven moment setting up how the heist is going to work for either. Nope. We, there's an attempt at it here in a minute, um, with penances, but it, it's very brief. Mm-hmm. Um, then uh, our girl Primrose stands up, makes the point to uh, make sure everyone knows that no one should be doing anything. And she sits right back down, which I thought was pretty. I actually did make me laugh when she's like, I don't think you should be doing anything. I'm done. Very in character moment. I love you all. Please stop fighting. Mm-hmm. Cut to the courtyard where they're going to do the hanging. And Frank is a little there or is there a little early with his deputy. I believe it's the one who drink his, drinks his lunch. I believe mm. that's his deputy. I think so, yeah. And uh, Frank is reading a paper and it looks like Effie wrote an article as if she talked to Malady. Mm-hmm. So uh, Frank dismisses this, says no one got her in. And he thought Effie was better than to just straight up lie like that. I, I don't know how he pieces. I mean, he doesn't know Effie from holding the walls. I don't know why he thinks he understands her character or anything, but it, you know, very, whatever. Very possible she's literally practically lived in the police station for the last five weeks, given what little we've seen of this episode. Yeah, I guess that's true. Monday then says he wants the, the men to keep a rough count of the number of people coming in. Get to 400 and close the gate. Close the gate! Mm-hmm. Hard home situation. Uh, the judge... <laughs> Judge judge said public, not packed. Mm-hmm. Again, another great move by Monday. Think if they had packed actually packed the place. Uh, if he hadn't made this move, it would have been way worse than well, it actually ended up being. Given the natural tendency of electricity to conduct through human bodies, if everybody was, you know, touching against that rail, yeah, dozens would have died rather than like a dozen. And I think that that was the plan for Malady, right? Is to basically yeah. just electrocute all of them. And Mundy basically saves the day here in this brief little innocuous moment where he's like, no, we're going to limit it to 400. And he ends up saving a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. We see a montage of bloodthirsty people coming to the courtyard and they run to the barricade. And the barricade looks like a metal handrail. We see multiple shots of the metal handrail. Mm-hmm. So, and, you know, it's going to be important. And Chekhov's gun. <laughs> it's coming, folks. Cut to pen. It's given her troops. This is where the Motions 11 moment that really isn't one mm-hmm. uh, comes in. And she's given her troops a rundown of the plan obviously won't have any holes in it. I mean, this is a perfect plan. 
And the strong Asian lady walks in and says, True said, take care of you. So I guess strong Asian lady really wasn't necessary for Amalia's plan. So she just sends her over to Penance's plan and says, Hey, look, you need to go. You need to protect Penance. Apparently she's pretty essential to Penance's plan because who else was going to do her job? Maybe Penance. I don't know. <laughs> no, no, no. Penance is firing off the explosive umbrella. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> what is Super. this plan? I don't know. Wait, like, hey, no, no, look no, over no, here, everybody. Okay, okay. L let us summarize now what the plan is based on what okay. we see later. Let's discuss what we know. That yeah. we've got uh, Nimble is going to make little discs coming down from the roof after knocking out a sniper, who apparently they have no overlapping arcs of fire to even see that he knocks out a sniper. Also, apparently, one sniper. Just one, one, just one, guy, one guy out. The army has brought out its best men for this, but one guy right there on that roof. That's it. Um, they're going to knock him out. He's going to assume the position for a minute. To, so you, I guess it's just up there. He's going to make diths so that Asian lady, we can call her Asian lady. Do we know her name yet? Or is she I don't know her name. Asian lady on the show? I'm just going to call her old Asian lady. East Asian lady. Sure. Old Asian lady. It works. Makes diths for her to jump down to that, to the gallows while Penance activates an explosive umbrella, which fires and makes fireworks to, I guess, distract the crowd. Distract everybody, yep. It's for while old Asian lady just jumps on discs in front of everybody down to the gallows to, I guess, grab Malady and take her back up the discs or off to apparently what is a hot balloon rigged carriage to fly her off over the city of London. That's the key part, is that the she has invented... So Penance is... Uh, addition to this other than mastermind the whole thing is twofold one it's the little umbrella that acts as like a firework to get everybody's attention so that they can snatch malady the second is the getaway vehicle which is a carriage which when you pull the lever becomes a hot air balloon and whoop, up they go and they can take malady wherever they want to go that's the plan does the show want us to believe that any aspect of this is a good plan well because the show I'm, seems to be assigning more moral imperative dependence on her side in terms of doing this but at the same time, is presenting us with this plan as the means to bring it about. Um, so I want to struggle with answering that question because I think that the whole idea of saving Malady is stupid. Yeah. Um, her plan itself, I mean, I don't know how else you, in broad daylight, just snatch her and, and take her away when you have guards and witnesses and snipers. I mean, I, I guess it's as good a plan as any. The problem is... is doing it in the first place but once you decide to do something so stupid i guess it's a fine thing to plan and execution i don't well, know what well, i mean the problem i've got with it is that it gives just a, a rampant opportunity for blowback this is going to be the touched very clearly blatantly using their powers out in public to rescue Malady and then fly her out of town in a hot air hot air balloon right but there's no alternative right because they, they don't have access to Malady until she gets out in public yeah but the so I, mean, I don't know what else they were supposed to do I'm not disputing that there may not have been a better idea, but there probably was. But sure, it's a means of doing that. My concern is that no one, other than Amalia, is considering the idea of how this is going to blow up in their faces if they succeed. If they succeed, everybody in the orphanage is going to be arrested within 24 hours as an accessory to a conspiracy to commit a, to commit a felony. To assist in breaking a person out of prison to avoid the executioner. They're all going to be brought up on charges. They're all going to be arrested. Assuming a riot doesn't burn down the orphanage by that evening. They're not talking about this at all. If the touched publicly rescue her, all of the touched in London are going to be blamed for this. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's a good point. You might, from my perspective, it might be overstating it to say that everybody in the orphanage is going to be arrested. I mean, it probably would be all the people who like were doing it, and maybe, maybe even some people who weren't. But it would seem, and maybe, maybe this would happen. But it would seem a stretch to arrest all of them. And I don't know. Maybe they, maybe that overreaction would come. I'm not sure. But you are 100 percent right. It's a point Amalia points out. This is going to, I mean, first off, Malady probably just deserves this. I mean, like, I mean, it's, it was a fair enough trial. She certainly wasn't convicted because she was touched. She was convicted because she killed a bunch of people and did a bunch of crimes. And, and, and let's pull back the curtain a little bit. Both you and I are opposed to the death penalty, too, in, in our modern world. But we're still like, yeah. hey, Malady kind of embodies one of the rare examples where the death penalty is justified heavily because she's guilty as sin. Yeah, no, I'm again. I'm 100 against the death penalty, and even in this situation, I wouldn't say that Malady deserves to die. But what I would say <laughs> is that, like, they are the whole escape plan from is predicated on the concept that she's being persecuted because she's touched. And I don't believe that Malady in this instance, maybe the public part of it, is playing into that. But I don't believe that she was convicted because she's touched. I believe she's convicted because she's a crazy serial killer. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's just my two cents. Um, cut back to the courtyard, and we see the handrail again. Handrail. I, I, I really also agree with your point, too, because the show doesn't set up the idea that they're like, anybody's trying the insanity defense or anything to say that she lacked capacity when she was committing these crimes or she, that she's in some way delusional enough she didn't know what she was doing. That's never presented as being anything that's even considered. So they can't offer that as a way of this being a miscarriage of justice. The show's only setting up that she's touched and she's bang hung. That's all they're giving us. So, yep. Yes. The, the rail. Handrail, handrail, and then we see some kid has set up a lemonade stand. So they're really driving home the fact that the people have gotten like weird and bloodthirsty and medieval um, uh, with this, and it's it's ugly. Very historically sure. authentic. It would be a show. We did that in America a lot in our early period, and we got it from England in terms of how that worked. Very, very ugly part of humanity coming out here in the general public. We see Lord Masson come in. He's got a perch to watch things, and the general's with him. The general points out the the snipers. He says multiple. Uh, looks like there's just one later, but. Uh, Snipers on the opposite roof. He asked how Masson fared in the underworld. And Masson said, the king was unresponsive. Said his men weren't trained to stop fights. I did tell him which neighborhoods to stay out of. Which is um, a straight up lie. Straight up. We know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The general suggests a beggar's palace coup. Basically, you want to take the beggar king out? Masson says, in time, perhaps. Masson then comments on the crowd is a bit thin. Uh, thank you, Frank Mondi. Shout out, my guy. Mm-hmm. Masson, then, uh, Masson then sees Hugo uh, and asks him if he's developed a taste for blood. Hugo, blood? Yes, just not blue. And Hugo then <laughs> weirdly jumps down from the perch into the crowd. He Cut to the that cur- one later. Cut to the colonel, who I maintain is the most powerful of all the touched. Uh-huh. He walks up to a guard in front of a tent, does his little, these are not good droids you're looking for, routine. Um, gets access to the tent. Cut to Penance, who's giving instructions to George. Apparently it's two minutes after he hears something, and then the lever goes down, and the prototype's been deployed, which would be the hot air balloon. Um, and then he drives out and goes to Porch Hill Road. That's the plan. Cut to Harriet, who, uh, Harriet, who um, ices a, a wall. Um, uh, it's really like a door, I guess. But anyway, she ices part of it, busts through. And by the way, we were we were confused during the grape scene in the last episode about Harriet's turn. I think it is pretty clear that she turns it into glass. Yes. It, it, we, specifically with the scene we have at the, near the end of this episode, it is glass that she is making. Or it is very ice-like. It is very glass-like ice. Yeah, it seems to be glass, not ice. And uh, they burst open, and they open the door, 
and she's got Desiree with her. She's complaining about Anil to Desiree. I can't tell if this is part of Desiree's turn. Like Desiree's turn is so subtle that I can't, like when people are just having casual conversation, I can't tell if it's her turn working or if Harriet really is just, just bitching about Anil to anyone who will listen. We, we haven't spent enough time with Harriet to really know whether she's just one to constantly vent. She, we've seen her complaining quite a bit about him over the course of the prior episodes. So eh, maybe a little column A, column B. Yeah, but she's getting pretty personal here, right? Because she's yeah. saying that Anil is going to leave her because she's smarter than he is. She knows the law better than he does. Desiree says, well, yeah, you're being silly. He'll show up and apologize soon. Mm-hmm. They see a guard. Penance comments um, that it's uh, um, that he's in, a, in an uproar. And uh, Desiree says, well, that'll work, work for me. So basically the plan is she's going to go work over this guard Mm-hmm. Uh, to do something and i guess desiree part of desiree's um turn is that people have to be kind of hot-blooded in order for this to work that's why as a prostitute it really worked for her will so people if they're like juiced up they're angry they're fired up they're horny they're whatever desiree's turn works better so i guess desiree's role in this whole heist is essentially to distract the eyes that are watching i guess so uh during the most important part of all of this by the way let me just mm-hmm. point out is during the cutaway where you see a cart. What are they selling, Spencer? Jellied eels. I told the story about jellied <laughs> eels did. with you Working did. Class London on this pod, and then we see a stand for jellied eels. I was so happy uh, well, that, I, that sort of that was the connection happened. The hot pretzel equivalent of 1890s London. Get your jellied eels right here, ladies and gentlemen, right here. Jellied eels for everybody. Then we see Ellie Bo- Effie Boyle just slinking around, being weird. But yeah. You know, if you if you haven't figured out what's going, let's say let's assume you're a casual. I like to talk to the casuals, and you haven't pieced together that Effie is in fact Malady. You would think Effie's being super damn weird here because she's mm-hmm. just slinking around and she looks very um, like over her sh- like you know afraid of her shadow type thing. Cut to the colonel and he's got the guys digging for buried treasure. I guess again, the colonel super powerful. Um, then we see Nimble take the gun away from a sniper. Apparently, so it's like a you know old school like Charlie Chaplin movie. Just boop, knock over the head, bang! I got the gun. Um, and apparently, there's only one. Then we see Malady get let in. Still not seeing Malady's face. Mm-hmm. Hair over the while eyes. She's, while she's being let in, there's a huge shaking underneath everyone's feet. So I guess Amalia's plan is working. Malady does <laughs> kind of a funny move here. Whoever's playing Malady, which we figure out later. Uh, looks at the ground and says, quit yelling, love. I'll be down in a minute. Pretty fun, funny line. Funny line. You can only hope if you're being marched to your death, you can be that that sort of charming and, and funny. There have been a few lines like that in history. They are memorable. Uh, we also see the crowd go into a fever pitch, which starts to crescendo at a drop the bitch chant. Um, tough chant there. The guys in the colonel's tent do find something. Um and then we cut to Frank, who sees Penance. He walks toward her. And at that moment, Spencer's favorite contraption the show has ever showed to us, the umbrella that turns into fireworks, lights up, jumps up, spins about 12 feet in the air, and catches on fire and sort of explodes. Is the point of this, I guess, to draw everybody's eye away from the gallows? Because if so, yes. this is utterly inept at that purpose. Everyone just looks up for a second, and then some people start shooting at her two agents that are trying to go to the gallows. Of course. Nimble starts throwing out those little landing pads still unclear what that material is i I think it looks like concrete but i'm not sure but the little landing pads and um again i don't know the person's name i'm just calling her asian lady asian lady takes off toward malady 
um, Nimble gets disrupted he, and misses one of the throws, so the lady falls. And then we see Malady tussle with one of the guards, and in a very short of shocking scene, just jumps down the well, snaps her neck, and dies. Mm-hmm. Everyone kind of pauses, like all, even the audience does, and, the, and all the crowd, which is all like, whoa, what just happened there? Penance then thinks uh, and posits out loud that Malady didn't want to be rescued. Uh, Frank says no. But she wanted everyone to see. Then he and Penance start doing that sort of like talking past each other. Mm. Oh, God, we're figuring out. Oh, God, we're piecing it together. Oh, God. Oh, God, it's bad. And they start to figure out, oh, everybody's in trouble here. And Penance uh, then figures um, the power lines that are under them are really going to nowhere. And she posits that maybe that's the source of the impending danger that mm-hmm. Malady has planned for them all. Cut to the colonel who is looking at Malady's body and says it's been a privilege. Very sort of subtly important thing here. It looks like he thinks Malady's dead, right? Well, because he kind of toasts Malady and says it's been a privilege. It also is the girl that he was hanging out with quite a bit. The one that the one that also died. So it may just just been he was giving honor to her too. Okay, that's a good point because yeah, who ends up being Malady is the girl we saw in episode two. Who's who, missing toes? Missing toes. Who had said that Malady's going to like. Uh, give her a turn basically which effectively she did in her very adult mind she made her malady yeah uh then he flips a switch as frank is trying to get people off the railings um and everyone holding the railing starts to electrocute and uh it seems like pretty brutal scene of people like actually electrocuting to death yeah electrocution is a really fucked up way to go it's a damn shame we still use it as a means of execution in this country very very painful it is quick but very very painful and people seem to be hurting uh but there are some some real mvps though in this situation who start to do body tackles of people who are holding on to the the railing effectively saving them mm-hmm. uh the general uh quote what the hell is happening massing fucking electricity <laughs> every every paranoid concern he's had in the past is confirmed in this damn moment. <laughs> That's the real problem here. If we just didn't have electricity, there, this thing would be going off without a problem. No hitch. Mm-hmm. Uh, Penance gets into the tent. The colonel says they deserve worse, and Penance is able to turn off the electricity, but not before getting a little shock herself. Unclear if she got hurt there or not at the at the moment. Then we see a stampede of people trying to get out. We see Hugo climbing up the railing to Masson's watchtower. Masson points a gun at him. Notices it's a rich guy, eventually pulls him up, but then starts to point the gun at all the poor people who try to come up um, and, and pushes them back down the ladder. Mm-hmm. Cut to Harriet and Desiree trying to get away. Harriet eventually blows into a door, uh, making it glass, but a crowd of people run up behind her, uh, eventually stampeding her. Um, she's being run over. Looks like she's getting hurt or in some level of she's danger. Trampled, and yeah. of all the people, sort of a surprising move here. Effie Boyle pull with, pulls Harriet to safety. Mm-hmm. Put a pin in that. I, I, I think that might be that Come might be back. telling us that this is going to go somewhere that's really going to piss you off. Yeah, let's um, go on. <laughs> uh, but then Effie, looking very uneasy, sort of stumbles away. Then we see a series of guys motion to each other and they eventually light torches. Uh, some of them like fires in the streets. Like, you know, like UNC just beat Duke. It's like, well, let's do this. Bonfire. We're, we're just <laughs> rushing Franklin. Yep. Let's do this. Let's party. Um, and the stop the touched chants start the background. And then we see the beggar king and he is Nero just drinking while he watches it all burns. Right. Mm-hmm. He's just just checking it all out. Uh, then we see all the bodies of the folks who died in the events. It seems to be a couple hours later. Frank is looking over them. Then he looks at the body that is supposed to be Malady. Whoop! Boot falls off. What do we see? Missing four toes. 
So we know it's Malady's henchman that we saw in episode two. This was not Malady who died. How many people were we supposed to be believe died in this event as a result of Malady's actions? Because there were a lot of white tarps that were around that scene. 15, 20 maybe? Something like that, that yeah. That was about, about my guess. And it, it would have been like in the hundreds if Frank hadn't limited the number of people uh, who were there. If there were like 2,000 people packed in that, the front couple hundred could have died easy. Yeah, so yeah, Frank's Frank again just crushing it all the time. Cut back to the orphanage and all the beat up touch people um, are being brought in. Horatio starts to triage people and work with them. Amalia and her folks are already back, and it looks like they were successful. Maybe I don't know. We get no resolution to the Malia plan plot line other than the shaking of the ground and her looking sort of like she just got done with a, like a pretty serious workout. <laughs> And that's like what we got. Uh, and maybe episode six will tell us <sighs> what they did, what they accomplished with the Galanthe. They'll explain the Galanthe perfectly. It'll all line up and you'll just be happy as a clam, Spencer. There are several things in this next episode that could redeem aspects of this episode that are just inherently frustrating. But man, is this one near the top of the list that we just yada yada the other plan to go rescue the Galanthe. Yeah. The no hell? idea. No idea where the Galanthe is. No idea what happened. They don't. E- we don't even get a couple lines of dialogue from Amalia explaining <laughs> it, which makes me think. Now, I'm gonna, look. I'm not. I know we're being really harsh on the show here, and if you're a big fan of the show, I, I don't really apologize, but like I just want to acknowledge <laughs> yeah. that we are doing that. And I don't. I do want to maybe give the show a little bit of credit, right? Because they do not give you the couple lines of dialogue from Amalia that could explain what happened with her plan. They could have very easily done that. So it makes me think we're going to get more of an explanation that's more than just a couple lines in the next episode, and that'll be somewhat fulfilling. It's very possible, and I hope we'll see it, because if they just end on this note and just move on, that'd be borderline nonsensical. This is the plan you've been building up for, this is the object that everybody's searching for, and you're just going to do a vague head nod that could be interpreted in different ways to say what happened? I I can't imagine they're going to end on that note. Especially considering, like, the Galanthe is, like, the key to the future plot, right? But, like, what the Touched are going to be doing, what Amalia is going to be doing, if she's even going to stay there, if she's done with her mission. I mean, that it, it's seemingly very, very important to later episodes, so I don't know. Seemingly, because every character says it is, but no character knows exactly what it's going to do. It's like the ultimate MacGuffin. It's imminently important to the plot, but the exact parameters of it are completely subject to imagination right now. Um, cut to Frank in his office, and he starts piecing it all together, we see it. Okay flashback that Malady had another person tag out with her on the day that Frank thought he captured her. Then he starts thinking back on the conversations he's had with Effie and it all starts to come together for him. He pulls out a file, scratches out the word unknown and writes in Effie Boyle. Cut to Effie walking around the riotous streets of London. Apparently the riot's still going on. Takes off her wig, takes off her shirt. She's not limping. It was Kaiser Sose all along, Mm -hmm. everybody. Uh, That's right. Effie Boyle, big reveal, Effie Boyle was actually Malady all along. Malady still very much alive and free on the streets of London, and bang, we are done with the episode. Yeah, this is part Kaiser Soze, part Hannibal Lecter pulling that guard's face off his face. It, it, it's, it is, if you had not given me the theory, I think they still gave me enough that I would have been suspicious throughout all the episode, but it's still an effective reveal here at the end. I, again, I like, I just like to give credence to the casual, because we wouldn't have these shows without the casual. Mm-hmm. And casual watcher, I'm sure there is a large percentage of people watching the show who is just casually watching the show. They don't break it down. They don't listen to our pod. And they were riveted by the end of this this episode. And I think that they, it was probably effective for a lot of people. It was telegraphed a lot. Um, obviously, I, I 
thought of it last episode. I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't the only one. I'm not trying to say I was, but mm-hmm. I did think of it last episode. Um, so it's, I don't know. I, I mean, th- I think look. it's, su- I think it's successful. I actually will give them credit for it. I think it's successful. They pulled it off. We, we could talk about it maybe being a little bit too on the nose and too predictable, but as you said, a lot of people wouldn't pick up on that and they didn't just straight up tell us. They gave us breadcrumbs to set it up. That's, it's aggressive foreshadowing, but that's also a category of effective foreshadowing. As we've said, this show can be effective, but coarse at the same time. I mean, it's what I want out of these fantasy shows. I want yeah. to be able to theorize. I want for these theories to materialize in some way on the screen. And this is, and I want to have breadcrumbs. I want to be sure. led to it. I want to have some clues, and then I want to have the reveal. So it followed the pattern that I'm really looking for in shows like this. The problem I have with it, which I have is the same problem I have with the rest of the show, is that it's condensed and it's happening too fast. Yeah. Um, because it, it was a period of maybe, maybe like three quarters of an episode that this whole thing really unfolded. And, you know, if you're going to do an effective, like, fantasy world, like, theory building reveal, you know, give me give me like half a season, right? That's what I'm looking for. Yeah, but they don't have time for that. They've got some events they want to get to. And, hey, they're good events. I just kind of often, I, I really kind of appreciate the moments between A and B rather than just the A and B. It is kind of like the the people who watch this show or people who create this show, like, watch Game of Thrones, and they got to season eight, and they were like, that's the pace I'm looking for. <laughs> that's what we needed all along in this show. <laughs> Let's just fly. All, um, okay. those, all those moments of the Hound and Arya walking through the Riverlands, boring as toast. Can't no, have any of those. Need to go. We need to go fast, fast, fast. Um, all right, so that is the end of the recap of episode five. We now can jump into our segment. Spencer, do you want to go to best line of the episode? I want to go to best line of the episode. Okay. All right. Well, as we normally do every week, you can supply me with some nominees. I will chime in when I have some. And then I, and I alone, because I'm emperor of this segment, will select best line of the episode. Spencer, fire away. All right. First one first from Lord Masson and one of his flunkies. I don't think any of his really is members of his little council are named other than him. We've just been calling them military guy, prince dude, and Masson. But... Guy with mustache is the other guy in this line. Our patient is, as you, our patient is, as you say, the empire, and it requires a bloodletting. The other guy responds, "You know that won't be enough, not for a lasting peace." It was fun to see this kind of dissension in the ranks occurring, even among the supposedly evil council. That was authentic. I appreciated that. That was a very human kind of moment in that scene. I liked that a bit. Yep. Uh, again, this line, I would not pick it as being the winner. But it's still a good line. um, If Satan himself is there, I doubt he is a match for Lavinia Bidlow. A great line, which could have been an even better line if it felt like it was set up at all. Um, We're um, from Lavinia and from also what's the name of the doctor? The American doctor again? Oh, um, uh, sorry. It's with an Um, H, right? Yeah, it is Edmund Haig. Haig. There we go. Uh, we're taking a terrible risk. It means to destroy us. If we've lost hope, it already has. It's some good dialogue between characters, an interesting scene, though creepy and weird in terms of the touchy-feeliness, but we've not seen enough of them to know what the hell they're talking about, other than that they are different paranoid fears about what the hell this Galanthi is about to do. Uh, line from later on, this is a fun line between Lavinia and Augustus. The more barbaric we humans are to each other, the more we pamper our pets. Or maybe the more we need them. Good line. Like that one. Um, let's see here. Line between Frank and Hugo. 
You ain't a man with an office, you're a pimp with a gimmick and playing with fire. Frank has a way of turning a phrase. That's a good line. And response sure. back response back to him, which really hits Frank's psychology here. Frank, why did you take a job that you hate? Because I work with the people who love it. Great line. Really hits into what Frank is actually about and why he's here. Mm-hmm. Do-do-do. A thing threatens the natural order is by definition monstrous, even if it's pretty. Lord Masson to the Beggar King. Good summary of where he's coming from on this. Um, the line you referenced in the Beggar King, the touched are going to change things. So did the fucking longbow. I'll adapt. Good line. Well suited Very for English audience. Very good line. Very good line. Uh, line from Penance. Much as I hate what she's doing this episode, it's still a good line. What about forgiveness? Does forgiveness exist in the world or did we just come up with a cure? Was kindness just germs all along? Again, I like that, even if I find what she's ultimately doing in this episode kind of stupid. Uh, that's actually all I've got. Okay. Um, I am going to select best line of the episode. This one is um, a little bit of, I'm being a little selfish here. Oh, um, really? You yes. as God Emperor of this segment are being selfish about Typically this? Typically, I try to give the people what they want by giving a best line of the episode that really ties together some of the plot lines or at least foreshadows where the plot is going this one really doesn't do that it's just simply a line that i like sorry sue me i must mundy stand this one best line of the episode episode five of the nevers comes from our very own frank mundy the new mvp of the whole series tomorrow we are going to kill a woman for the public's entertainment because that's what london is now it's jack the fucking ripper grown into a whole city you're in entertainment you should come get in the dirt smell the blood then you'll know what's on your hands. I, Woo! Pur- I purposely didn't include that one because I was leaving a space for you to jump in with it because I assumed that you were going to say it. So, good call. That's the one. Uh, Frank Mundy gets best line of the episode. I don't think he's ever gotten best line of the episode, has he? he said uh, we some- usually go with some Amalia, like, creepy foreshadowing line of, like, what she is or what she has to do. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever Frank- picked Frank before, we- have we? We've- he's been up there for best line several times, but I don't think he's ever won yet. So, kudos. Well-earned Kudos badge. to Frank. Congratulations, Frank Mundy. You win best line of the episode. We move on now to best character arcs. Wow. I'm so excited to talk about this segment with you. Okay. I've been, like, limping along to get to this segment because I want to hear where you go because you seem unhappy with the episode. I, I didn't... <sighs> It's an episode of where I liked the moments and hated the execution attached with them. And there's several things the next episode can redeem about this if characters behave how I feel that they should in responding to events or at least just explaining what the hell happened. But I can't only judge this episode by what I've seen so far. So yes, I found it a frustrating episode. Even if I liked a fair bit of the dialogue and moments between the characters, even just scenes that are playing out, I particularly liked the resolution at the end for what Malady's doing, even if I find Joker characters inherently frustrating. Um, so I'm going to, I'm going to go aggressively opposite from what I've ever telegraphed in the show before. And I'm going to go with what the show wants me to feel and say Malady is ahead in the pack this time around for character arcs, just because she is much more than we ever thought before a character with a plan, maybe a dog chasing a car, but it's a plan. And she executed it to perfection. What the long-term goals are, who can say, like you, her rescuing the one touched is interesting, I guess. Maybe. We'll see where that goes. But I say through a certain degree of gritted teeth, okay, show, you pulled this one off. She is, if not in the front, I'm still going to pick her just because of how much of a momentous rise it is from where she was. 
Um, I enjoy that you had to do that. I enjoy um, I'm biting the bullet how for miserable you, <laughs> you were when you had to do it. I mean, Malady obviously is the best character arc of the week. I mean, she's got to win the week. Yeah. Um, I obviously can't pick the same one as you. That's the rules of the segment. So I'm going to go with basically the answer to every whodunit question you've got in the show. <laughs> I, 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 uh, I build it as the best pound for pound reveals of the episode. The guy getting the most pound for pound reveals. I mean, Malady gets the one punch right at the end, but it is constant for this guy through the episode. And that is our very own Lord Masson. It seems like he did everything. It's Spencer. Too- to a degree that it often doesn't even feel realistic, but yeah, every kind of plot that we were debating and assigning to other characters, particularly to Lavinia, yep, yeah, it's all Lord Masson. It's all Lord Masson. So Malady and Masson win the week, but characters that have been very low on our character arcs up until well, now. Lord Masson's go been go, Lord Masson's been going about like a rubber band. He's either been up at the top or he's been at the bottom, and he's at Doge Twin for sure. Um, <laughs> He's all over the place, but now we can transition what? to worse. I've got thoughts on worse. You went first with best. I'm going to give an honorable mention still for w- one last one for best. Okay. O- honorable mention, Frank. Let's give Frank yeah. an honorable nod. Frank has had a hell of a road and only continues this episode, including him saving a lot of people's lives and independently working out the malady plot despite having none of the evidence, almost none of the evidence that we did. I mean, think about the growth from Frank. We are introduced to Frank as a drunk who mm. beats up all of his suspects mm. and who is participating in, you know, sex trafficking. Trafficking of some kind. Yeah. That's what we're, that's what we have for Frank. That's a baseline for Frank. And <laughs> what is he now? He's the only adult in the room. He's the only one making any sense episode to episode. So he is, he's obviously grown a lot. Frank Mundy, he might be a perpetual honorable mention, but he's certainly an honorable mention this week. That's a very good call. We will now go to worst character arc. Um, I've got thoughts on worst character. Oh, you're going first, man. It's a flip this week. So where we normally, basically what happened is this is the revenge of the bit characters episode. The maladies, the Massons. I would say even the beggar King had a stronger episode for him. This episode than other episodes. So that I think it's the revenge of the bit characters. It's the mains in my mind that fell to the bottom of the pack. I'm going to go, with the obvious choice here, Penance gets worst character arc of the From week. you! From yes. you! Justify um, your choice, sir. I want to hear it in detail. Um, I think that you've got... So first off, I am starting to become very uninterested with her and Augustus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not playing that well because it's it's so fractured and it's so infrequent and it seems very, very forced when it happens. Um, I I have had an absolute enough. I've got my till. My bag is full. I don't need any more, sir. No more, sir, of the penance. Hey, let me show you how my prototype works. Oh, it works. It works. Oh, now it doesn't work. Oh, disaster. Isn't that funny? Done with that slapstick scene. Let's see no more of that. You're going to keep then, seeing that. I'm done with that. I've got my fill. And then we've got uh, her whole plan to try to rescue Malady, which is stupid on the surface and stupid in execution. And then we, you know, we have the end where it seems like she, she certainly doesn't seem like she's been leading this group. It seems like everything fell apart and she kind of lost her confidence. So I've got penance very low. This episode, she gets my worst character arc. I mean, I'm going to have to pick somebody else, but I'm with you about that. This was a rough road from penance. Maybe even the worst. I don't mind at all characters behaving stupidly, particularly when it's in character. And penance comes. <laughs> and, 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 I, penance comes I want to isolate that. I don't mind characters acting stupid. 
I don't. It can fit very much into the plot. It's appropriate. People behave stupidly. And Penance has come across as a very innocent, naive, well-meaning character who is particularly easy, easily scarred by the events that are confronted against her. And as you said, the new scene clearly shook her about how she feels about this when she already had reservations and concerns. All that's fine. What I mind is that nobody calls her out on it other than Amalia briefly, and the show seems to think what she's doing is not only good but the right thing to do and not necessarily stupid. And in the ep- next episode can redeem a lot of this. If this is an important moment in her character arc for her becoming less naive, becoming less innocent, more thinking about what the repercussions of her actions could be, all that could be great. But we can only judge it by where she is in the race right now, and where she is is low. Like, ma- lowest she's For sure. Been. For sure. Penance low. I'm going to go with a controversial one just because I did not like what they did with her character this episode, particularly from how high she's been in our rankings before. Amalia. It's like we're reading off notes. Literally, here's my here's what I, here's what my notes wrote. I had best character arc, Malady, Massive. Worst, Penance, Amalia. It's... Right it, there with you, co-host. Right there with it, you. It's so weird, because she's a fascinating character who's got this incredible bit of lore put around her. It's got a lot of mystery wrapped up in there. The actress does wonderfully with the role. She's clearly the protagonist of the show, and somehow she was not only just background this episode, she was off camera for most of this episode for what should have been the most important moment of her entire arc. This is everything she's aspired to do. This is everything she's planned for. This is what best she can tell is her purpose on Earth, and it happens off camera. Now that, again, can be redeemed next episode Maybe I'm so. Well, we don't have next episode right we now. Don't. Just talking about what we saw, and it, it, there's no payoff to this, and it's supposed to be the biggest thing that's that happens in the whole series. And even in those, like in terms of character growth, I don't like her and the Doctor cousins getting back together. That feels real negative character growth for either of them in terms of just an event to go through. That feels very regressive in terms of what they've talked about and where they're going. And sure, you that's ready for her to get with Augustus? They were they were a little chummy. <laughs> Let's ship them, Spencer. Let's ship them. <laughs> should have never taught you that word <laughs> but it, it was a cute scene between the two of them i like that they're friends and i li- actually like that augustus is now part of things i just wish it had actually been set up but yeah amalia yeah, yeah, sure. i'm gonna put her low despite the fact she's got the most interesting otherwise plot arcs in this show just because the show almost aggressively did not want to talk about him this episode it is revenge of the bit characters week that is what we had this week um, okay, Spencer, anything else, any concluding thoughts you've got about episode five, Hanged? Now, if we're also going to start doing runner-ups this time, who would be your runner-up? You picked first, so give me a runner-up for who would be your third. Runner-up for worst character arc? Yeah. Galanthi. <laughs> fair. Perfectly fair. It's a character now. Yeah, the Galanthi gets my worst. Uh, yeah, it's uh, I've just had enough. Uh, I, I, it was just... I've had enough of the vagaries around it. I mean, I understand what they're trying to do. Trying to make it uh, so that we theory craft and we have a good time with it and all of that. That's fun. But it's a little bit too much with the with the Galanthi. I mean, when you just drop the word on us and then just start using it casually and there's no context for it or how it's been introduced to our characters at all and we don't get any background at all on what it is and we actually have characters openly mocking the fact that no one knows what the hell it is mm. a little hard to follow that's all i'm gonna say i'm with you i think it's a good choice uh particularly since I, I i'm amazed to say that galanthi is a character now that doesn't wasn't expecting that five weeks uh, you know i was gonna say five weeks ago but it was just a week ago for us um 
All right, we've gone to, we're now to our third segment, theorizing time, and you, sir, have two weeks in a row, dead on, perfectly accurate, you know, words and gospel from on high kind of messages as to where this show is going. What, sir, is your Oracle on the Mount prediction from where we're going next? I hate you so much. I can't, you're, that, see, that's, I hate that introduction. Speak you, the you, wisdom. Speak to us, Damn it, sir. you. you you've, you've exalted me too much now. I'm obviously going to fail. Look, here's the thing. I, <laughs> what? Stum- yes. I stumbled upon two weeks of true, uh, the- seemingly true theories. Um, and I, I don't want to disappoint our listeners, so I am going to, in fact, give a theory this week. Although Please. I do, I will admit it's a weaker, it's a, I'm going to call it a theory, but it's weaker. Okay. It's more a prediction than anything. Um, so I think what the show is telegraphed here is that um, the touched are going to be in a almost open battle with Masson. I mean, they they really amped up the rhetoric, right? Mm-hmm. From the crowds, from what Masson has been doing, what we see him doing in the background, and what the touched the rhetoric the touched are even using about it's a us versus them situation. You're gonna get get that open war that's going on, mm-hmm. and Amalia is gonna be the head general for the touched. And what I think you're gonna see is a malady. So malady will be helping Amalia. We are going to see. Malady just outright assisting her. There will be probably collusion between Malady and uh, Amalia as they as Amalia executes whatever she's doing. And I think it was telegraphed with a seemingly innocuous scene of Effie pulling Harriet out of trouble. Yeah. I think I, I I understand. Roll your eyes. I, no, no, I, no, and, no. I, and I get it. It, it. it maybe was a little bit too telegraphed, but. I think what we saw there was Malady revealing her hand that, yeah, she's nuts. And, yeah, she she, she um, is going to go about it a very different way than Amalia. But they have similar interests, which are protecting the touched against the uh, against all of the, the, the bad people who are out to get them. So I think you're going to see Amalie, Malady, Amalia hook up partnership for the next i would say probably three or four episodes. This is your kind of Thor Loki teaming up to fight the big bad kind of moment. Kind of, that's what I'm. That's what I'm seeing. Okay. I, I think you're going to get some collusion between Amalia and Malady as soon as the next episode. Perfectly possible. They're two characters that have seemingly are hearing messages from some semi-divine figure. They're meant to be kind of two sides of the same coin kind of thing. So it makes sense for them to them to come together in some capacity. Though if Malady's actions are intended to aid the touch, she has the weirdest damn way of going about it. Because seemingly her actions have, if anything, put a bigger bullseye on the touch than anyone else could have ever hoped for. Particularly this episode. This episode, she is setting up a pogrom of the touched before this show is done. Yeah, but I think that we're going to, you know, Malady has been firmly in the villain camp for the mm-hmm. first few episodes. And I think the show is trying to shift to Masson so. is the villain and Malady is an imperfect um imperfect ally to our protagonist that's what we're gonna get i'm what i'm kind of vaguely hoping for is that we reveal that malady has actually been hearing things it just hasn't been from god it's been from galanthe that she's got a straight line to the galanthe and she's fulfilling his purposes and we learn that he its purposes for galanthe and we learn a bit more of a <laughs> well-rounded not more dark version of what galanthe actually intends for london can i also do a minor prediction mm-hmm we're getting a bonfire, nimble hookup scene. It's coming soon. Uh, we, we've got to have one 15 sec- minutes into the first episode, next episode, maybe. It's happening. 
we, we've got to have one sex scene in every episode. It's HBO. We already did Amalia and Cousins. We can't do that again. People are already bored. It's going to be Bonfire and Nimble. Yeah, I think that's right. two, okay. two, two things I want to ask you about, just if we can theorize about them together or ponder them together. Fire away. Point, question number one. In our little... Do we know what the Secret Council is called? The weird Illuminati thing that's secretly running London? Did, no. Or, I don't know what... I, I Honestly, I don't think we know. Order of the Lion. Who knows? Something, probably yeah, something let's like call that. it something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we saw in that scene that they, as a group, we'll just question them I have here in a minute, don't know who's making the monstrosities and are at least officially working to stop them from doing so as part of some kind of white man's burden thing for protecting people even if they think they're lesser. Because they show, like, we've been investigating this and we've still not found who's been making these, I think it's like horrors or monstrosities, and they show a picture of one of these guys with the biomechanical mouth kind of thing. So if we are believing from this scene that the council is not part of it, do we still think that Lord Masson is in some way affiliated with it, given your theories that him and Amalia, uh, him and Lavinia are in some way working together? Yes, I do. And I think it'll be connected to whatever the hell is in his basement. And, uh, and how much are you on board for that being his daughter in some shape or form, just to just utterly bury the hatchet that we're meant to view this guy as an inherent, irredeemable bad guy before this? 90%, I'm 90% there on the daughter thing. Um, but yeah, I think he he is operating. I think he's like a, a super secret double agent, right? He's the kind of like um, this the bad agent mm-hmm. that we see with the Order of the Line, as you've termed it. Let's call it that from now on. Sure, he's that bad agent, but he's also the, the he, he's a double agent within bad because then he's also another level of bad, which is working with Darth Lavinia um, on on some really super shady shit that probably includes the the, the weird stormtrooper guys that have the weird face. Okay, that kind of touches into both the things I wanted to really ponder out. That both, A, were of a reasonable enough belief from all the foreshadowing they've done that Lavinia and Masson are in some way working together, and then that kind of inherently suggests that either he is turning a blind eye to the other experiments that all Lavinia's agents are engaging in, or he's directly connected to them. Sex scene we don't need? <clears throat> oh, don't Dr. you fucking dare. Don't finish the thought. I don't want to talk about that. Edmund Haig and oh. Lavinia. We do not need that. No. So just throwing it out there. No don't more ca- need it. No more caressing. Please stop the it's caressing. It's going to be a hard no from the, the Never's More podcast. <laughs> We've declared. Uh, okay. Anything else on theory crafting for the week? No, I think we. I think you've got... I think you played it easy this week, man. I think you played it kind of easy and light. But, you know, you got to pad your score. I understand. Yeah, I don't. I didn't honestly didn't have much, uh, but I had to throw something out there, and that's the only thing I can. I, I feel like I had a, a hint of where they were going, which is Malady as as ally to the protagonist here, and that's what we're going to get. She's clearly going to play some role involving Galanthi before this episode, before the next episode is done. They're going to have us forgetting those twelve murders at the opera pretty pretty soon <laughs> in the back half of season one. You know, that's actually been one of the things that also really pissed me off about this episode is how much they're willing to yada yada that not when non touched people die. It's like, yeah. hey, yeah, no, they don't matter. It's very much the kind of superhero mentality that also frustrates me for so many Marvel or DC movies that, oh, an average person dies? Hey, who cares? Focus on our heroes. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, like Hulk fighting, you know, whoever in downtown New York with a lot of the skyscrapers just falling around them. Like, nobody gives a shit. Yeah, yeah. all those people are dying. It's fine. When a character goes through a skyscraper, he killed people. He should be covered in just utter gristle by the time he emerges from that thing. But, yeah, yeah. we don't regret those details. Anyway, that is our... Okay, I guess that wraps up our coverage of episode five. Anything else you want to say before we conclude? Nah, you know, it's got enough moving pieces in order that this could make for a very exciting finale. 
I'll just be curious to see to what degree it also takes the time to redeem some aspects of this episode that we found frustrating just because they didn't give them to us. Unless it's a super long finale, it seems like they have a lot to get done, but this show knows how to rush, so I'm sure it'll find time. Yeah. Okay. Well, that concludes our coverage of episode five of the Nevers here on the Nevers More podcast. We will be back next week covering episode six. Episode six is a reminder is the mid-season finale. They will take a break. We will get six more episodes on the back half of season one. And guess what, folks? We will be here with you then as well. Nevers More podcast is here with you for the Nevers as long as the ride continues. Hasn't been picked up for season two yet, but if it is, we'll be there as well. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe, rate, review. That stuff really does matter. We appreciate everybody for listening and doing that stuff. And we'll be back with you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.